Cheers, my dears. Uh, you know, last night I couldn't get to sleep because of my head. So I decided it's to... It's my head! So I decided to finish up reading Batman, Batman. for today's show. Oh, these? Yeah. Oh, right. And I was talking to one of my friends as well over Facebook. And uh, so I'm reading comics. Like, all right, is it like the Dark Knight movies, or is it like the cheesy original stuff? And at that moment, I put the comics down, <laughs> and I wrote them an essay on everything wrong with the Dark Knight movies, and how the originals weren't cheesy at all; they're just a, a misconception because of the Adam West show. And they replied back with, "Okay, then." <laughs> <laughs> so your friend slowly backed away from you. <laughs> yeah. And I maintain there is nothing wrong with the first season of the Adam West TV show. It is a very, very good adaptation of 50s Batman comics. Mm-hmm. But even, even Starts then, going a bit silly in the second season. Even then, the, the 50s stories aren't all that cheesy, especially when the original ones. That's true. The yeah. word original that they used... Yeah, well, were they talking about the 30s and 40s stuff? Exactly, yeah. So I said, well, at the beginning it was really dark and it was a, a crime story and he carried a gun around, so it wasn't cheesy at all. No, it was crime noir. Yes, it was Batman. <clears throat> but yeah, went right over the heads. Did it? It did. It's Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. Hard for early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics, a comic book podcast. A Lurgy-filled comic book podcast. Are you Lurgy-filled? I'm Lurgy-filled. I like that, because it's not only me that's Lurgy-filled. Yeah. I'm quite happy that it's you that's Lurgy-filled. The only problem with this, though, I will become Lurgy-filled. Well, I'm always Lurgy-filled. It's just, it's become the norm. For you to have a cold. Yeah. It does seem to be your, your default setting, doesn't it? It is, yeah. Anyway, you know this week? Yes. Nothing. No? Other than to say... Yeah. The Mighty Pad Smash podcast, which is an Incredible Hulk podcast mm-hmm. about Peter Allen David's run on The Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Peter Allen David Pad Smash Hulk. Uh, uh, Smash. See? That's... That, so yeah. Good, that, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Hosted by the awesomely lovely Lee Busby and the equally awesome J. David Weeter invited me on their show. Did they? Yes. What were you for? I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't contribute anything. I just kind of sat there and went, uh, okay. It was good. <laughs> yeah, they asked me what I thought of the comic and I went, is that right? <laughs> that was it. That's all I did. No, in actuality we talked something like four hours. So it was a big show, though. Yes. A good 80% of that was nothing to do with the Hulk. Fair enough. So I've got no idea how David's going to edit that. Mm. But I just wanted to thank Lee and David for inviting me. And you lovely listeners, all 15 of you, can check that out when Pad Smash returns from its hiatus. I don't know when that is. It may have already happened. Yeah. For all I know. But go and check it out. It was fun. And I had a great time doing it. But that's it for this week. We have no preamble. No. So I will gather up the comic books that we are going to talk about this week and move into the email section. Our first email 
is from Kyle Benning. Christmas episode feedback. That We've was... not got past Christmas we yet. <laughs> oh, hello, Kyle. Hello, Andrew and Michael. I hope the entire Leyland family had a great Christmas. We did. We had a great Christmas. He asked how the weather is. Well, at the moment, it's 100 degree, 100 mile an hour winds. Oh, yeah. On the news, they're calling it the, the wind, windy Wednesday. Battered Britain, they're calling it on the <laughs> yeah. news, aren't they? <laughs> I looked out the window and I want to know where yeah, all this garbage is going down here. It's the Bill X thing, isn't it? Here in the American Midwest, in northern Iowa, we're enjoying some toasty minus 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that's cold. Yeah. We think zero is cold. Zero is cold. But minus 55, that's cold plus. That, that's Fahrenheit. We have it in Celsius. Uh, minus 48 Celsius. Uh, right, okay. <laughs> okay, he converted it for us. Right, oh, so, so we didn't have to, yeah. yeah. so we didn't have to. Because we don't use the silly Fahrenheit system. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Iron Fist run, Kyle's email gets, says when he gets to the comics. Claremont and Burns run one of the characters a blast to read, which it is. I, I concur wholeheartedly. I recently reread the entire run, says Kyle. Uh, I've read a little bit of Power Man and Iron Fist. I need to track down more of these issues. I wish Byrne had a longer run as artist on the book. Issues 48 and 49 of Power Man, and then the combined Power Man and Iron Fist issue 50 had some gorgeous Byrne art. But I can't complain too much that Byrne left the book so he could stay on top of his art duties on New Gig X-Men, which would shortly go monthly after Byrne took over. I've never read your second tale of Marvel Team at 127. I love Kerry Gamble and it sounds like a great Christmas holiday tale. I'll try and track this down and add it to my annual Christmas comic reading. You hit on a good point about the Christmas tree. That seems an awful lot of work to go to for only one day or two of enjoyment. We usually dig our tree out and get it set up the Saturday or Sunday after Thanksgiving. Wow. We wait till after Anya's birthday. Yeah. Because Anya... No, no, we wait till further than that, don't we? It's usually the week after Anya's birthday. Yeah, well, Anya's birthday is the beginning of December, and the it's Christmas stuff has already kicked into full swing. Yeah. So we have always been of the opinion Christmas doesn't even start till she's celebrated, because we don't yeah. think it's fair that her birthday gets swamped by Christmas. Mm. But more and more later in your lives, your mum was like, no, we don't put the Christmas trip till they finish school. And now because, that, you know, where's the fun in being Christmas when you're at school? Yeah, yeah. Which is fair enough. But being in high school, we only break up until two days before Christmas. Oh, you're home every single day. I don't choose the timetables. <laughs> you work shy fop. Eggnog, Kyle continues, despite the sound, is pretty delicious whether it contains alcohol or not. I'm surprised you guys haven't ever had eggnog. I believe it was invented in England. Eggnog is a mixture of milk, egg, sugar, vanilla and spices such as cinnamon and nutmeg. Nowadays, most of the raw eggs in the mixture have been replaced by artificial eggs. Obviously, raw eggs are a no-no, which I think was kind of the point of the alcohol. In addition to Adrian getting a little goofer, it also served to sterilise any bacteria concerns in the raw eggs or milk. Obviously, non-alcohol versions can't rely on that sterilisation, and that probably helped instigate the move to artificial egg replacement. Vegetarians don't want to be left out, of course, so there are non-dairy versions containing soy. You should give it a try. I highly recommend it. A wide range of alcohols can be used. I recommend using black velvet toasted caramel. Another great episode. Listening to your podcast at work makes the day much more enjoyable. Kyle Benning. And knowing that you listen at work makes us much more enjoyable, doesn't it? Uh, we have said that if the show concludes in September, when Michael goes to university, and the reason we're being a bit vague if on Michael this... Michael goes to university. Well, no, no, you, you will go somewhere. <laughs> You'll kick me out. Yes, but the decision has not been made as to whether you're going to stay here or leave yeah. and go and have the full university experience. So if, if we're being a little vague, lovely listeners, because we don't actually know what's happening, 
mm. at this moment in time. Michael has four interviews. Yeah. At four well, different three interviews in a portfolio. At four thing. different universities. Yeah. So as it currently stands, it's all up in the air where he decides to go and what he decides to do. But if he decides to go, the show ends because it isn't Hey Kids Comics without you. You are fifty percent of the show. Okay. You're the funny fifty percent. Really? Yeah, I do. You must be really unfunny. Yes, well, (laughs) this is an established fact, obviously. Um, But we have said that we will do specials, we will do reunion movies that will never be as good as the real show. Straight to DVD. Straight to DVD, yeah. And one of the Christmas one, we've already got the title, Hey Kids Comics Has Risen From The Grave. Yeah. (laughs) And we will buy an eggnog from Starbucks (laughs) and we will drink our first eggnog live on the show, like we did with Twinkies and Ho-Ho's. Yeah, well, when we, when we pretended that we never eat a Twinkie or a Hobie. We never eat one for the show! Come on, dude! It's all about the show! Yeah. Anyway, so we'll try an eggnog at Christmas. Or uh, we could just not have the eggnog and drink the alcohol instead. Yeah, well, <laughs> isn't that situation normal? Yeah. Uh, our next email is David Main. Andy and Michael, says David. It's just titled The Amazing Spider-Man. Right. Spider-Man. With no hyphen. Phil Spider-Man. Phil Spider-Man, yeah. <laughs> I've heard rumours, thanks to Bleeding Cool, that Peter Parker will be returning. Not rumours anymore, David. When was this email? 12th of January. This brings up some very important questions. Number one, does Doc Ock taking over Spider-Man's body still constitutes changing the status quo? No, yes, it does not. It does. Number two, if so, does Peter Parker returning constitute another change in the status quo, or is it merely returning to the status quo? Take care, David May. No, it doesn't. It's a change. It's it's not. No, it is. It isn't. It's a story. I'm not having this argument again. We're not having this conversation. We're not taking we this case. We have to answer the Stop email. That, David. <laughs> the answer number one is no. Yes. The answer number two is no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll miss this. Uh, yeah. So, yes, Peter Parker is returning to the Amazing Spider-Man. And Superior Spider-Man is ending... But apparently we are getting a new Spider-Man 2099, is the current rumour. Yeah, I've read so, that. So, whether or not that happens, we'll have to see. I don't know if I'm on board if Peter Dervis is not writing it. Yeah. I mean, I'll give it a go, because, you know, Spider-Man. Such a mark, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> the Spider-Man stuff. Uh, our next email is from Chris Franklin. Hello, Chris. Howdy, Leyland. It's entitled P.I.s and Dead Guys. I like that. That rounds it. Good, that, yeah. Howdy, Leyland. Listening to your Marvel Zombies episode today, I realised I had failed to write you about your Slam Bradley episode last week. Chalk it up to listening to far too many archived episodes of your fine show. I've been bouncing back and forth along your timeline, taking in Star Wars, comic adaptations, summer vacations, maximum carnage, relaunch month, you name it. I feel like my brain is Gallifrey and at least 13 different versions of you two are bombarding my brain a la the day of the Doctor. So please excuse my lapse in response. I can think of nothing more more terrifying than 13 13 of us. us. Versus of us arguing over status quo changes. <laughs> Two of us can't answer the question, yes. and uh, 26 of us can. Yeah, but the 26 of us wouldn't agree. Yeah. Is the point. Chris continues. Slam Bradley. I first met Slam in Detective Comics 572, where he teamed with Batman Robin, the Elongated Man, and Sherlock Holmes. This is a great story in that great and greatly underrated run by Mike W. Barr and Alan Davis, one of my favourite Batman runs of all time. Shortly thereafter, I tracked down Detective Issue 500 that I somehow missed when it hit the stands. Slam was just one of many former Detective stars to share a nice but short mystery. 
I do have the issues of Detective you covered here, but I'd nearly forgotten the slam backups despite their fine pedigree. I think it must have been the awful Bruce Wayne murderer fugitive that was running in the main stories that made me mentally block out these stories. Definitely worth another look. Um, firstly, let's editorialise, because yeah. that's what we do. The Mike W. Barr Alan Davis run on Detective is excellent, as is the run on Batman and the Outsiders. Bruce Wayne murder fugitive, never read. Never. never read that. I wasn't reading the Batman books at that time. Mm. So I've never read it. And some people say it's good. Some people don't. Some people don't. They are about, the mighty DC are about to republish them is as big fat trades yeah. like they did with No Man's Land and where they're going to, yeah, where they're going to put the stuff in that they previously didn't collect hopefully unlike Nightfall they'll get it right this time yeah and you know is it too much to hope for text pieces oh, with yeah. a bit of background <laughs> you think that's too much to hope for I think it might be friends become enemies enemy becomes friend hmm too much to hope for really? alright fair enough so I'm, I'm I'm willing to read it myself because uh, I've never read it and it obviously is a story that divides people, which mm. to me is the most interesting kind of story. Yeah. If you go into it now and you hate it. Well, that'd be fab. I, I still, I am strongly of the opinion I would rather absolutely loathe something or absolutely love something. Than have never read it. Or than just go, it's alright. Yeah. It's okay. I'd rather the Star Wars prequels were divisive than be like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which are just crap. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's just my opinion. <laughs> Chris continues, on to Marvel Zombies. Andy, you know you talked about being on an island to yourself. You're not alone. We're both Oliver Queen. <laughs> to become something else. I've never been a big Zombies fan, and I'm probably the only person on Earth who hasn't watched and or read The Walking Dead. Just not my cup of tea. Despite them coming from the same small town as Robert Kirkman and his original Walking Dead collaborator, Tony Moore. They both went to the same high school as me, but I was a few years older and never knew them. Marvel Zombies sounds like brainless <laughs> fun, but I must admit the old fuddy-dud in me did have a bit of a problem with it. Not so much the comic, but the merchandise. During its most popular period, my family walked into a comic shop several hours away from our house. While looking at the mini-mates on the counter, my then six-year-old son asked me, Daddy, why does Spider-Man look like that? What's wrong with Mary Jane? <laughs> I looked down to see a Marvel Zombie statue based on the wedding cover riff you spoke of. I have to admit it sent my parents' sense of tingling. Marvel markets Spider-Man on diapers and preschool toys and then approves something like this where he's a rotting corpse who's obviously taken a huge gory bite out of his wife. And to top it off, this store puts it at kids' eye level. And comic retailers wonder why they can't get young kids into their shops. Parents are afraid of stuff like this. Imagine walking into the Disney store and seeing Mickey eviscerating minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. I I love the merchandise for whatever Marvel. Well, is. yes, especially the action figures. They did really cool action figures. Let's say the Spider-Man one. You could actually take his leg off. It was so in the Captain America action figure. You could take his head off too. But <laughs> where it gets cut off. Can you not see the point though? Yeah. The problem that we've got here is the comics are now in this nebulous world where old people like me are still reading them. Yeah. But the merchandise, an awful lot of it, is still aimed at kids. Because Spider-Man and Superman and Batman still hold an appeal for children. I want to say merchandise are aimed at children. There are, there are lots of collectors... Well, no, that's there. what it's, that merchandise wasn't. I would argue, though, that the problem, though, wasn't so much with the merchandise. It was with the store putting that at a kid's level. Uh, that should have been on a higher shelf, maybe behind the counter. But then the, you're thinking of most comic store owners are only setting up those stores to the stereotypical demographic. Yes, but that's the point. They shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, the, yeah, you won't take kids into your comic store if you think they're going to see somebody getting their head bitten off. Yeah. That's the point that, that Chris is making. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with him. 
I don't mind Marvel Zombies existing. I don't mind Marvel Zombies having merchandise. I, I think the problem there is that the store positioned that merchandise in the wrong place yeah. more than anything. I know, I know, it's probably just me, continues Chris, and I'm an old-fashioned relic. I don't begrudge anyone enjoying this, but I will admit I kind of miss the days when comic companies cared about upholding the character's wholesome image. Despite all that, this did sound like a fun what-if type story, but I do agree it probably should have been a double-sized comic special. There seems to be plot holes bigger than the one in DD's chest. It was still a fun show, as always, and now I'll leap back into the past and bounce around your personal time stream and listen to more old episodes. Sorry I'm not as cute as Clara Oswald. I definitely can't pull off that little skirt. Chris, I've just got images of pulling off Clara's skirt. (laughs) That's taking me to a happy place. It's taking you to a bigger happy place, hasn't it? Oh, this is a little bit awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Is that you crossing your legs? (laughs) That was some strange idea. Uh, We'll do a little one, because the next one's little. It's from David Bland. It's called Episode Ideas, which we did solicit. Yeah. Ideas. Hi, Leyland. Hi, David. I've got two ideas for future episodes. One, the Infinity Gauntlet, possibly my all-time favourite crossover event. Truly a classic comic story. How can you go wrong with a cosmic war between good and evil? Number two, Spawn. Okay, well, it was good in the 90s. <laughs> to be honest, I mostly want to hear this episode because I'm curious about how crazy you two think it is. Thanks for your time, David. Well, I got the Infinity Gauntlet for Christmas. Yeah. And I have considered it. It's it's in the book, but obviously we may now have finite life span, mm. so we don't know. But I've certainly considered it. Spawn, I sold all my Spawn comics in the mid-90s. Made a nice little bundle of them, to be yeah. honest with you. I had some like the first 20 issues. Mm. Flogged them all in the early days of eBay. Made some nice wedge. Sorry. Never missed them. <laughs> Oddly. I wonder why. Never missed them. One of the um, purchases that I got rid of and never felt the need to buy back. For, well, to bring it in full circle, uh, there was an artist who worked on Spawn who we're talking about tonight. Indeed. But, yeah. You would think we planned all of this. You would, yeah. yeah. But uh, we don't. Some say he needs no introduction. And that... I'm going to give him one anyway. (laughs) All we know is he's Carl Luke Giaconetta. EC Comics, no silly subject line needed. Greetings, my fellow happy horror hounds and grizzly groovies. Really dug your selection of EC horror and crime comics. I was first introduced to them in the very early 1990s when my brother was buying the reprints that Russ Cochran was putting out. These reprinted two different EC books for 64 pages of comics for $2. A great deal, even back then. From there, I snagged up double-sized reprints from both Cochrane and Gemstone, along with the trade paperback-style annuals, which usually pull together five or six issues of a particular title. My favourite of the EC books is The Vault of Horror, mostly because Johnny Craig set up shop over there and was responsible for most of the covers and many stories, typically the ones hosted by The Vault Keeper. To wit, my old GeoCities horror review website was entitled Luke's Vault of Horror, and my handle was, naturally, Vault Keeper Luke. Most of the EC stables of artists had distinctive styles. Craig excelled at seemingly normal scenes with a horror element added to them. Graham Ingalls, who worked a lot in Haunt of Fear and typically had his stories hosted by the Old Witch, had a creepy, slimy sort of feel. And Jack Davis, usually in Tales from the Crypt with the Crypt Keeper, excelled at sheer grotesquery, both in the horror and the expressive faces of the characters therein. 
I got a chance to talk briefly with Al Fieldstein at Heroes Con in 2008. I had sought him out once to pick up a gift for my brother. I ended up buying a print of a repro of a Tales from the Crypt cover, Tales being my brother's favourite. I got to talking to him, expressing both my and my brother's admiration for his work and how these stories he told in the EC books helped us develop a love of horror and the macabre. He seemed genuinely flattered that these stories he wrote 50 plus years earlier were still being read and enjoyed. I have attached a picture and I have to say that sweet Christmas I have a lot more her in 2008. And if we scroll down, we can see the picture. There's Luke. Yeah. Hey, Luke. He looks like his kids. Or his kids look like Luke, I suppose I should say. That's pretty cool, that picture with Al Felsner. And you mentioned the amicus film Tales from the Crypt, which does include a very well-known adaptation of All Through the House, starring Joan Collins. But I missed if you mentioned its follow-up from the following year, The Vault of Horror. There, you missed that, Luke, because I didn't mention it. <laughs> Research is for lesser men. It is the same format as Tales, an anthology of five shorts with a framing story, with four tales coming from the pages of Tales and one from the crime suspense stories. Amicus, often lovingly referred to as the poor man's hammer, made several of these style of films in the 60s and 70s, including Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, which I've seen. Yeah. Oh, I've seen Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, which, despite its terrible name, is utterly fantastic, says Luke. <laughs> Torture Garden, Asylum, and From Beyond the Grave. Love the show, Steve. <laughs> hey, that's a blast from the past. Keep them coming, Luke. You're very welcome, Luke. And thank you for emailing in. I'll be the first person to email in about EC Comics. Coming up, we have more emails from Kyle and Chris and Luke and Spencer and Davis and Michael and Kyle and Trey and John and Dave and Brad. Oh, my. But they're coming up. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the concluding part of our happy birth... No, dreadful birthday, yes. <laughs> dear Joker season, death in the family. Of the... Of the family. <laughs> Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. You want to know how I got these scars? My father was a drinker and a fiend. And one night, he goes off crazier than usual. Mommy gets the kitchen knife to defend herself. He doesn't like that. Not one bit. So, me watching, he takes the knife to her, laughing while he does it. He turns to me, and he says, Why so serious? He comes at me with the knife. Why so serious? He sticks the blade in my mouth. Let's put a smile on that face. And... Why so serious? A brand new century brought about a brand new Joker. 
DC Comics saw a new editorial staff take over the reins as decades-long managers were shown the door. Jeanette Kahn, who had taken over DC in the late 1970s and had steered the company through some of its most creatively successful and commercially lucrative projects, stepped down as president of the company in 2002, succeeded by long-time executive editor Paul Levitz. Levitz's tenure as president was nowhere near as long-lived, stepping down in 2009 to be replaced by Diane Nelson and Dan DiDio, later joined by Jim Lee and Jeff Johns. What did this mean for the Batman family, and by extension the Joker? Well, increased exposure for one. Throughout the 90s, the Batman family had seen their star rise, becoming the company's flagship characters, even pushing Superman into second place. With even more animated series which featured the Joker prominently, and the rise and success of direct-to-DV animated movies that focused heavily on the Bat family, it was inevitable that live-action would come calling again, after the previous live-action movies crashed and burned with the, quite frankly, appalling Batman and Robin. And so it was that in the early 2000s, Batman was revamped again for the cinematic media, this time with Christian Bale taking the title role, and with the success of the movie Batman Begins, it was a foregone conclusion the Joker would show up in a sequel. 2008 therefore saw the release of The Dark Knight, a radical reinterpretation of the Joker from actor Heath Ledger, whose tragic death before the movie was released was such a delicious piece of Joker-devised lunacy, one can't help but muse that were the clown prince of crime real, he would have relished the irony. It certainly didn't harm the box office, and Ledger's completely bonkers Joker, which had even more of a dark edge than Jack Nicholson's, cemented the character's popularity whilst giving Ledger a career-defining performance that won him a posthumous Oscar. Writer Mark Miller has even postulated that because the highest-grossing Batman movies have been the ones with the Joker in them, maybe it's the Joker who's the real draw. However, DC's fortunes, unlike those of the Batman, were not on the rise. The company had moved from publishing event to publishing event without ever really managing to damage Marvel Comics chart dominance, and so, on June 1st, 2011, it was announced that DC were to cancel its entire line of comics and rebrand with an all-new Ground Zero reboot. Rebranded as DC Entertainment, Dan DiDio felt they wouldn't be taken seriously if they did not restart their oldest comics, and so Detective Comics, having just clocked up over 881 issues, was relaunched with a new number one. And where the Batman appears, the Joker must surely follow. And then just as quickly disappear. Detective Comics Volume 2 Issue 1 was written and drawn by Tony Daniel. The cover, also by Daniel, shows the Batman glowering menacingly. It's seems to be what he's very good at, whilst the Joker's head rests upon a collection of bloodied dolls' heads. In this issue, the Joker is dispatched to Arkham, as usual, but this time it's all part of an elaborate ruse, and the Joker has plans to hook up with the Dollmaker. The Joker, on yet another of his rebirth endeavours, requests that Dollmaker remove his face and pins it to his own cell. He then disappears from Arkham because, presumably, this far more disturbing Joker still has his lure underneath the venerable asylum, just as he did in the 70s, waiting for the right moment to strike. Uh, to be brutally honest, I thought Detective Comics number one was quite poor. It's competently produced, the art and writing are fine, but it's just so painfully clichéd. The story opens by informing us of how many people the Joker has killed over the past years, and then moves on to show him repeatedly stabbing a man to death. Where is the Joker that was amusing as well as psychotic? The Batman himself is boringly predictable as well, all clenched teeth and cliched dialogue, and the entire issue seems like it was influenced by Seven. 
The ending, where the Joker cuts off his own face, seems shocking for the sake of being shocking, and removing the face of one of your most distinctive and visually interesting characters seems a little misguided. Did you like Detective Comics number one, Michael? No, I thought it was horrible. I thought the art was horrible. It's Tony Daniels' artwork deteriorating as his popularity grows. Um, I thought the story was bad. I thought the Joker was painfully trying to be too hard to be funny. I just... I I didn't like it at all, really. Um, Although I do... It was good for the sense... sake that... Yeah, it was that... It was DC doing what they set out to do with the Joker. They were getting him out of the way because he was showing up too frequent in every single Batman title all the time. Irony! That... The, the, what that issue the the purpose of that issue was to get Joker out of the way to take him off the table for 12 months yeah yeah um, I didn't loathe this as much as you seem to do I just thought it was very by the numbers gritty naughty's Batman tale wasn't yeah. it it was there was nothing else to it there was no there was nothing redeeming to it hmm the death of the family teaser stories continued on in Detective Comics issue 12. The Telltale Face was a backup strip by James Tinian IV and Zyman Kudransky. Nancy is a rookie freshly transferred in and Harvey Bullock shows her the ropes and leaves her in the evidence room alone with the dead face of the Joker. Many rookies have been assigned here over the past year, none of whom lasted a week. Nancy freaks out a little when she hears the skin laugh and mock her, but she's just plain angry when she finds a microphone in the box with the face. She punches Bullock in the face and Harvey welcomes her to the GCPD. This backup strip was better, a fun and funny little tale showing the hazing of a raw recruit by Bullock, and his reaction to her discovering his prank is typically Bullock. He's probably going to like this girl. Reading this back-to-back with number one reveals a flaw in the five-year timeline. Does it really? I know you're going to be shocked by that. <laughs> in this story, the Joker has killed over 300 people in the last five years, whilst Detective number one stated the Joker has killed 114 people over the last six years. It's a minor continuity nitpick in what has been a well-thought-out, rigorously planned reboot. As a story, it shows the influence of the Joker even when he doesn't appear. Well, he does. Kind of. Ish. Ish. In the last panel. In the last panel. Did you like that one? I didn't mind it. It was alright, wasn't it? It, it Nice little backup. It was cool reading this as it came out. Like, even though they'd, you know, revealed that they were doing a Joker story. Crossing over into all the back titles. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) There There was still that... That hype you got from reading that story, and that was the last issue of Detective Comics we had, we got really, apart from issue zero. Yeah, well, one of the things that was really good about this series was reading it on a monthly basis. My God, it was tense. Yeah, wasn't it? See, this is something you're not going to get from the trade. The monthly reading experience of this was this was the book we read first every month, mm. and it was the one we got to the end, and whichever one of us had got to it first, <laughs> it was. <gasps> Have you read back? Yeah. And it really was one of those, this is what sequential comics are all about. It was riveting, and it was magnificent to read, and the art was fantastic. And a lot of it also depended on that wait in between. Yeah, and, and the, the the suspense between waiting for next issues yeah. was palpable. Both of us mm. were literally, are you, have you read Batman? 
No. <laughs> Throw a lava in it then. And we'd, we'd fight over it. There were a few issues I read in college as well. I was oh man, you got to read this. This is some good yeah. stuff. Michael <laughs> took him to school so he could read them before me. <laughs> yeah. Can I read that? No, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. Death of the Family kicked off properly in Batman issue 13 and ran through issue 17. Covered dated December 2012 through April 2013. And it was all written by Scott Snyder without by Greg Capullo and Jonathan Glapion. Scott Snyder's run on Batman has been one of the most critically praised of the new 52 relaunch, and rightly so. Snyder has managed to deftly weave his particular brand of long-form storytelling around the editorial mandates of the company, oftentimes ignoring crossover mandates even when they came from the highest offices, simply by telling his tales in Batman. And if the other Bat books wanted to join the party, then that's fine, but don't expect him to take too much notice. The fact that he's also been a top seller can't have hurt. Alongside artist Greg Capullo, who's grown in leaps and bounds as an artist ever since the beginning of this series, Snyder has managed to create a run that may be remembered as one of the character's best. It was inevitable, though, that DC Editorial would want the return of the Joker to be a big deal, but once again they short-sightedly showed comics' current need to gouge their readership by taking this story, a taut, five-part claustrophobic intense tale told in the Batman title, and stretch it out over 23 issues. The core plot takes place, as mentioned, in Batman, with spin-offs and addendums appearing in... Batgirl 13, 14, 15 and 16, Detective Comics 15 and 16, Nightwing 15 and 16, Catwoman 13 and 14, and Suicide Squad 14 and 15. Further crossovers took place in Red Hood and the Outlaws 15 and 16, and Teen Titans 15 and 16. This never makes me buy more comics. In fact, on me, it has the reverse effect. All the reviews I looked at in researching this series seem to suggest that whilst the story was well received in the core Bat book, the crossovers into other titles was regarded as somewhat superfluous and interrupted the storytelling in those titles. However, a quick look at some sales figures reveals that all the titles that took part in the crossover received a sales bump, and in some cases, that sales bump was substantial. So it seems like I'm alone in not supporting these crass money grabs and therefore we only have ourselves to blame if the comic companies continue to produce them. Well, even in your list, you've missed out three yeah, issues. Have I? Which three have I missed? Batman and Robin. Oh, there are Batman and Robin as well? Yeah. Blimey, I must have missed them. I'll be honest, from what I read of that one, the Batman and Robin one was pretty decent. I think I only read the Nightwing and the Batgirl ones. Yeah. But some, some of them were decent. Yeah, they weren't dreadful. They weren't integral, but there were elements of them that carried over into the main Batman titles. Yeah, and but having only just reread this for this show, yeah. I didn't miss any of them. No, no, but the, there's a few lines that Robert, Nightwing and Batgirl saying like, yeah, oh yeah, that the, happened. The Nightwing and Batgirl one seems to be the most integral. Yeah. I certainly don't feel I missed anything by not reading Red Hood and the Outlaws. That, from what I've read of that, that's not all that bad. No, I'm not saying the title's bad. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I don't feel like I missed anything by not buying it or the, reading it. The, the, the times to this, that I didn't read all of them and I had no interest because <laughs> uh, we read that Catwoman one that was supposed to be the prelude. To yeah, the, yeah, it was crap. Yeah, it was. But it, the, the times didn't seem as well thought out and as well written as the Night of Owls ones. Well, lovely listener and Michael. We're not going to be dissing on the new 52 in this, or the five-year timeline, to be honest with you. We may make a little dig here and there, but for the most part, we're concentrating on this as a Joker story. But both Jeff Johns 
and Scott Snyder have said publicly that they were frequently writing stories that they did not plan on being crossover events. Yeah. And Dan DiDio has come in and made them crossover events. Blackest Night, Jeff Johns has said he just wanted that to be a Green Lantern story. Mm. He didn't want that to be a 48-page crossover. 48-page, 48-issue crossover. Yeah. So, Batman's a good title. Yeah. So, we're going to we're gonna accentuate the positive, mm-hmm. is what we're going to do. The covers this month all have some weird half-Joker face thing in cardstock and underneath was the Batman's face. It's a gimmick cover. Interesting, I suppose, but the actual art is rather bland. It does give completists like you... Yeah. A nice little checklist on the back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Missed Batman and Robin. Yeah, you were absolutely right. Batman and Robin 15 and 16 also took part in this crossover. It wasn't just this month as well, though. It was the first issue of the series. So if there was a tie-in that, that came out, say, two months after this, that would have the die-cut cover. Right. It's got, a, it's got a varying cover, if you prefer. Gimmick or good? I like them. I ain't gimmick. The yeah. comic's good. Well, very definitely gimmick. I mean, DC are bringing back the gimmicky covers of the 90s. Yeah, well, somebody did want... I can't remember who it was. It was really pithy. Yeah. It basically just said, DC is now image in the 90s. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you're going, actually, that's not far from the mark. But anyway. Die-cut covers, 3D covers, yeah. holographic covers. All those 3D things. Knock Knock is the title of issue 13. The Joker, dormant for over a year, has returned to Gotham. He reintroduces himself with an audacious attack on Police HQ, and then a TV announcement that he will kill Mayor Hardy at midnight. However, the Joker on TV is not the Joker, rather a reasonable facsimile that the Batman's computer analysis reveals to be John Claridge, son of Henry Claridge, the Joker's first ever victim. The Batman cuts off communication with his allies and does his best to protect the Mur, which he does, but everybody else dies. The face of the dead also contracts into a frown rather than the usual smile. Clues in the alteration of the toxin lead the Batman back to Ace Chemicals, where the Red Hood tells the Batman that the Joker is back to return Batman to his roots by removing all of his allies. He traps the Batman in one of the old vats as the Batman deduces this isn't the Hood, but Harley Quinn. Harley is scared. This isn't her, Mr. J, anymore. And Batman cries out for the Joker's location as the vat fills up. Whilst at Wayne Manor, Alfred Pennyworth opens the door to a hammer-wielding Joker. The opening is absolutely fantastic. No, the little uh, kind of Easter egg on page one. What's the Easter egg on page one? Well, the taillights. What about him? It's, a, it's the Joker. It's his face. They do it several times throughout the entire series. They'll have objects representing the Joker. Do they? Yeah. I had not noticed that. Little visual gags. Yeah, that's one oh, of them. All right. Very good. I did not notice that. It's a brilliant opening. Absolutely fantastic opening. In addition to this, this little visual thing that Michael's just pointed out that I did not notice, you got this lovely scene between Gordon and Bullock. Bullock mm. actually looking like Bullock, unlike yeah. he did in Detective Comics number one where he looked like the Penguin. Discussing some Gotham weirdness, like a lion's been born with two heads. And then they segue into mundane, everyday discussions about quitting smoking, which rapidly becomes horrific as the Joker arrives in a forget-me-not floristry delivery truck, plunges the police station into darkness, and then snaps the necks of different policemen and women. Batman does point out later how out of character it is for the Joker to be so hands-on, and it did seem a little odd that none of these coppers managed to get a few shots off 
given the Joker is attacking them face to face. But it is an exquisitely paced scene. The writing and the art contributing to a tense, claustrophobic atmosphere. Absolutely fantastic opener. As with a lot of this comic, I mean, the entire story, mm. echoes of the past. Very yeah. similar to the opening of Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker. Yeah. On Comic Book Resource, I think it is where they have the previews of issues coming out that month. <laughs> For this one, it was up to when Batman shows up. And oh, see, they should have not had that purge. They should have stopped at blam blam. Well, I can't, it, it, was, it was definitely there. Because if you end there, it looks like he's just killed Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, but reading that before the issue came out, because I do do that sometimes. I never and do that. It was, wow, this is, ooh, this is really good. It is, it, it is but an exception. It's, it's, the writing's really good, how it goes from the, the nice little character beats between Gordon and Bullock, mm. and then Gordon uh, and the policewoman over the dollar bill. Yes. Which was, and then the, the bit with the joke, this is another example of what I think of Joker being terrifying and scary at the same time. Especially when you never actually see him kill someone. Yeah, because it's all in darkness. I mean, the dollar bill thing, Michael's turn, is wonderful. They're analysing some um, hot 20s, and Commissioner Gordon just says, no, don't bother, they're bleached and reprinted. And she's like, how can, how can you tell? And Gordon's like, I can smell it. And uh, Jackson is looking left and not right, see? Yeah. And she's like, how did I miss that? <laughs> and it is it's a lovely little character beat. It's got nothing to do with the story, has it? No. But it's just a lovely little character. And moment. then there's the thing with when you do see Joker in the first panel, where he's all silhouetted you, on that one. Yeah, when he walks, you in don't through, see, through the, you door. see the rest of him, but you don't see his face. But it, it, this kind of thing where it's already been ruined that he's got no face on because of the cover and yeah. the build up to it. But it's and still Detective One. Yeah, but it's still that little creepy panel. Yeah. It's, the artwork's brilliant. You can't say enough nice things about uh, Greg Capullo's art. Mm. Um, one of the things I took away from this, in addition to the fact that he is obviously paying homage to previous Joker stories, in New 52 continuity, Batman number one apparently happened as we read it. Mm-hmm. It makes clear references to Batman number one and all oh, the man who laughs, I suppose. Yeah. If you want to stretch it, don't you? You could say he's referencing the man who laughs. Well, that page there where Damien pops up do you remember the other day when I told you that I had a problem with the new 52 and couldn't remember what it was? Yeah. This this page is it. Why? Because Damien acts as though he's never met the Joker before, right? Because he underestimates him. Right, because I've read I read this as Damien's never met the Joker. Yeah. Because I've not read Batman and Robin. But they've already established several times that Dick Grayson has been Batman on two occasions. Nightfall and the death and return of Bruce Wayne. Right. right? Which all still happened... Yes, but <laughs> in Batman and Robin, in which Dick Grayson is Batman and Damien is Robin, yes, right? They meet the Joker and they have a big fight with the Joker, and Damien knows how dangerous the Joker can be. But if that happened, why has he never met him before? I said we're not going to pick on the five-year timeline because it is just fish in a barrel, isn't it? Yeah. At this point, I mean, there's pl- there are other opportunities through the story where I'm going to point out that it don't work mm. but at this point we know it doesn't work but as a self-contained story yeah. well even the most ardent of fans of New 52 have had to con- concede it doesn't work yeah who gives a toss at this point it don't work move on it's only Batman and Superman that suffer from the yeah. timeline it's only Batman and Superman that have suffered from them saying well actually this did happen yeah well this didn't happen and that's what's muddy in the waters well it either all happened yeah or none of it did Something in Animal Man 
my sort of like my two favourite titles of the New 52. Ground Zero reboots. It, well, apart from one reference to the Grant Morrison Animal Man run, that's it. They're all very separate. They're all self-contained. Mm. It's Cake and Edith. Yeah. They want that. They want both. Anyway, Capullo's art on the page where Bruce receives a call from all his allies is brilliant. A brilliantly yeah. laid out piece of artwork. Essentially, it's a splash page. Bruce is wearing no cowl, and the scallops of the chest emblem spread out to accommodate the images of the other characters. Capullo's layouts in this series have been exemplary. Mm. Couldn't have done that last week with the guy who just didn't draw the scallops on the back, could they? Who was no, that? Um, can't remember. And we took the mick out of the cover that the bat wasn't a bat, it was a dove. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. absolutely fantastic. No, his layouts have been really great as well, even from the, the simplest things. He is doing a really good job as well. I'm, we're currently reading Zero Year. He Which has is great, done yeah. an excellent job of making Bruce Wayne look older here. He's done an excellent job making everything look different, from the costume mm. to the cowl, the nose Even though it's clearly Bruce as Capullo draws him, yeah. he does look at, it's the same guy but younger. Yeah. He's done a great job with that. Oh, he's, he's, he's a great... He's gotten better. Oh, yeah. Reading it on a monthly... Well, on a monthly basis, you never notice that until you go back like this. Yeah, and go, and this is great, but it gets better. Just see how much he's improved over the two years he's just been working on Batman. Yeah. He's great as well, following him on Twitter. I'll admit, I'm on Twitter. But <laughs> <laughs> seeing... You tweet. I, I, I don't tweet, I just follow people. Right. But seeing him post his pencils and he's different... When, when he had to redo a page or redo a panel as well, it's great seeing that. Very good. Well, he was funny on Fat Man on Batman. Yeah. He's a very interesting fella. Gordon and Batman's relationship is very well defined by Scott Snyder. They have a mutual respect and liking for each other as opposed to the often antagonistic repartee they have had in other stories. I prefer a Commissioner Gordon that gets on with Batman. I think this is perfectly exemplified in the, the dialogue exchange when Batman comes to the MERS to try and protect him. And Gordon says, I'm afraid to ask how long you've had eyes on the MERS place. And Batman's reply is, then don't. Mm. I that was brilliant. That's that's one of the best scenes in the the, the issue, just because of the the dialogue. Just because of the interplay between yeah. Gordon and Batman. See, the brilliant thing about that is you can read that as in being serious badass if you choose to. Yeah. Oh, but if you're me, you can read that as him being funny. Yeah. He's very being very deadpan. Then don't mm. <laughs> don't ask me how long I've been doing this because you really don't want to know. <laughs> but that that the, the dialogue, especially when Gordon. Asks him, can you can you tell if he's scared or not? I think the relationship between them is very well shown in this. Um, well, throughout this entire story, in fact, throughout his entire run, Snyder's done an excellent job of showing how psychologically deep the Batman and his subordinate characters, the characters who orbit him, mm. can be in the hands of a good writer. Yeah, he does have. I mean, I I maintain for a long time Spider Man had the best supporting characters in comics. But Batman has the most psychologically rich characters in comics. Yeah. There's so much going on with these that you can do stuff with, which is probably why 76, 75 years on, he's still a top-selling character. Because they're, they're able to strip back all these layers of onion yeah. on each character and get under the skin. It's absolutely fantastic. This is when it pisses me off. You know when people accuse comics of being two-dimensional? Yeah. Read them, <laughs> you numpty. I love the bit where Batman realises that the Joker isn't killing Hades too late to do anything about it. Mm. He's killing everyone else. It's just like 
he just stops what he's doing yeah. as he's worked it all out and then just runs off and Gordon's like what is it the mayor and he's no everyone else and he opens the door and all the police officers that were in charge of guarding Heidi are all there turning toxic my favourite being the guy who's throwing up yeah, on the other guy on the other police throwing up blood it looks like as well yeah it's it, this felt like a Joker move. Yeah. It felt like something the Joker's sixth sense of humour would come up with. It's absolutely fantastic. Mm. Absolutely great moment. The Joker's taking it back to where he belongs in this story. And Snyder even manages to have a few nods to the old days by having Batman get knocked into a vat by a giant mallet. Yeah. Which should be campy as hell. And isn't. Well, it works both ways as well. It's there to be campy and to be a serious reflection of the early stories. Yeah, which is... He's arguably doing this better than Morrison did it. Mm. Everything is still part of the tapestry yeah. of the Batman and the Joker's constant inevitable inevitability. I think Grant Morrison called it, didn't he? Yeah. But he's done it in a much more compressed fashion. It's not as in the foreground as Morrison put it. Yeah. It's reading this, because I read this on a monthly thing. This yeah. is the first time I've sat down and reread this as a whole. And reading it as a whole for this, I was really impressed by how he's weaved old stories into this one. Yeah. This is why they didn't have to reboot. Mm. This is continuity used properly. This is continuity used to write a story that propels your characters forwards by not forgetting what happened in the past. Yeah. Arguably, this story doesn't work in a rebooted continuity. It needs the Red Hood to have happened. It needs Batman number one to have happened. It needs Five-Way Revenge and Laughing Fish. I'd argue that it works better for being in a rebooted title. Do you? Yeah. See, I disagree. I think I read this, and you can read this, as just another part of Joker Week, or month, or whatever we've done. Read Zero Year. Oh, Zero Hour was completely new. Zero Hour was a complete ground yeah. zero retelling of Batman's origins. No, the, the, the Red Hood stuff, once you, if you're reading this and you're going, all right, yeah, cool, it's just another Joker and Red Hood story, but then you read the first chapter of Zero Year, the Red Hood stuff, Mm. and then you can go back and see how this is very different from the older things. You're not not going, oh, it's just another Joker story anymore. It's it's Scott Snyder's Red Hood Joker story. Right. Well, I'm going to reread all of his run on Batman. Certainly I'm going to reread Zero Hour as a complete entity. Yeah. A gestalt, I think they call it. Because reading this and then the Zero Year stuff back to back, it is... Pretty damn good. Yeah. Especially at the end... Is this crying out for an omnibus when he finally leaves the boat? Probably, yeah. But at the end where the Joker and the Batman have the little... Tete-a-tete. The little bit of dialogue. And you you could just read that as, oh yeah, Batman's bluffing. And then you read Red Hood, Mm. the Zero Year Red Hood stuff, you're going... Was he bluffing? I didn't oh. think that he was. Right. Well, we'll talk about that when we get to the end. Batman not being fooled by Harley was cool. Yeah. It's Harley in the Red Hood. And Batman's just not not having any of it, is he? He's not confused by it. He's not fooled by it. It's not one of those moments where he takes off the mask and suddenly a man becomes a woman. Yeah. Like Robin was fooled by Joker dressed as a, <laughs> a redhead. Yeah. And in the TV show, Jill St. John being Robin. And Batman not spotting it. <laughs> and then you look at Jill St. John in that Robin outfit and you think, why is she giving me a bat boner? When Burt Ward never did that. 
So there's none of that. He knows this is Harley straight off the bat. And the most chilling moment in the book belongs to Harley. Hmm. The smudged makeup as she's crying. And at the end, there's even a subtle catching in her voice that hmm. you get when you're reading it when he says, He's not the same, Bats. He's not Mr. J anymore. And that's just brilliant. Even Harley's scared of him. Well, the backup strip at the end is one of the, the best backup strips of the entire series. Yes, it is. Um, I didn't do any coverage of the backup strips in our notes. Hey, we'll finish this. Finish this yeah. and talk about the backup strip, because it's a brilliant cliffhanger. Yeah. Alfred opens the door to a wrench-wielding Mr. J. And it's that, that last panel, finally seeing the Joker's face in context, mm. was really good payoff. Yeah, um, as Michael said, there is a backup strip where the Joker essentially tortures Harley psychologically oh, yeah, yeah. where he's, he's making her think he's going to cut her face off and actually what he does is he just puts the red hood on her mm. and says right go off and meet Batman and get him in front of the hammer so basically it's setting up the conclusion uh, to knock knock and the dialogue as well where it's like oh if you cut my face off will you still find me beautiful and he says when did I ever say I found you beautiful oh yeah he's, he's a complete tosser yeah. to Harley and but, the, you know. the artwork does a great job of showing how alone she is. Yeah, the artwork by Jock. Yeah, which I is, like the is, art. isn't great, I'll admit. And Jock's just a completely different artist to Greg Capullo. I don't dislike it, I think it works quite well for this story. Mm. And, um, I mean, we've never read The Black Mirror, which he drew. Yeah. But I thought it worked well for this, this little backup strip. I didn't think it was... I didn't have a problem with it. Snyder manages to show why this run has become such a great read on a month-by-month basis. He manages to take a genuinely silly idea, taking the face off one of the most distinctive and visually interesting characters in comics, and turns it into a genuinely chilling story of a Joker interested in taking it back to basics. What Snyder has done with Batman is essentially what Mark Wade has done to Daredevil. He's made the book accessible to all who may have a passing familiarity with the characters, but unlike Wade, he tells very definitive continued stories, where Wade follows the formula of having each issue be distinct but part of a whole. Snyder manages to make each issue feel like a good read, though, not just part three of six. So I never feel short-changed by Batman. As we mentioned at the top of the show, reading this on a monthly basis was almost unbearable. Yeah. Well, the thing with most of his stuff is it's all good, but then there's those issues or moments where it's really great. It's exceptionally like good. the recent Zero Year one, where it was a, the triple length one. Was it yes. 325? Yeah. He becomes Batman. Yeah, his first act, his first yeah. act is Batman, which was fantastic. I hope Zero Year... Yeah. Is it Zero Year? Yeah, yeah. Is, ...becomes better known than Year One. Yeah. I would... I don't dislike Batman Year One... But there's a part of me that now would like it to just go away. Yeah. And Frank Miller's influence on Batman to go away. That's Well, that's one of the best things Snyder's done, is he's brought a fresh new take on everything and wiped away. But it still feels like Batman. Yeah. It's not like he's brought this fresh new take by chucking everything out the window. Mm. He's looked at everything that works and brought that with him whilst moving his stories onward. radically different yeah. as well, yeah. Whilst still being exactly the same. Yeah. Which is a remarkable trick. On the face of it, this follows the same formula as a lot of other stories. But there's something different 
about the Joker this time. He genuinely feels more chilling, even if he does follow the post-millennial serial killer Joker template, rather than the terrifying yet still darkly humorous clown prince. Where Snyder has really scored throughout his entire run is in the characterization. Here we have some lovely little touches, Gordon trying to quit smoking and Barbara trying to aid him. Some nice moments with Bullock, a nice Bat family scene, even a quick glimpse behind the facade Harley Quinn effects. The art is sublime. Mm. Absolutely, Matt. Can't say enough nice things about Greg. Capullo, primarily the ads in this issue, and I've not talked about the ads in any others because they're all rather bland yeah. and boring. They're all for Arrow, to be fair, which has grown into a pretty good series. But I do feel the need to point out one of my pet bugbears. There is an ad in this series for Death of the Family that is laid out exactly like a film. Even the credits look like a movie poster. I don't mind that, especially... You, you'll find it a lot in this entire run of comics where they'll integrate the credits like they do in a TV show or a film. I know. Do I have to do my comics out <laughs> films rant again? Uh, no. Okay, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it, it, it works and it doesn't work at the same time. Yeah. Uh, There's a part of me that would rather have the credits integrated into the story than just have a page I don't mind credits. credits being int- integrated into the story. I'm on about that is a movie poster. I guess. Or a comic. But Even the font is a movie poster. I guess. Batman number 14 has a cover that was used for all the promotional art of the series, including the aforementioned movie poster. The Joker sits with his back to us, staring at a bank of loosely wired together computer monitors. Every monitor shows a different member of the Bat family, with Batman himself being on the monitor. The Joker is sitting on Joe's Garage is written on the back of the Joker's orange overalls. Mm. It's primarily the poster art for the entire run, isn't it? There's a bit of me that likes it just because of how all the TVs are upside down or the wrong way. Yeah, all hanging from the roof. It's alright, it's a fine cover. He's got Commissioner Gordon on one of them. Robin, Alfred, Batgirl, Nightwing. Is that Tim Drake, Robin? No, it's... Oh, right, Red Robin, though. Yeah, Red yeah. Robin in the corner, he sat on Batman. I like how he's got chattering teeth holding them together. Yeah, he's got chattering teeth everywhere, which he'll use later on, won't he, to yeah. tie Batman up. And I do like how he heals his face together with a belt. Yes. I'm not. I'm still not made up with that, the ripping off of his face. I think, but, right, I think it was the best thing they could have done, to be honest. It worked for this story. Well, there's that, but there's only so much you can do with the Joker, really, once... As we, I think one of the things we've seen doing this... Yeah. There is a very formulaic nature to Joker stories. Yeah. And this one, again, it is, but it isn't. Yeah. It, it, it kind of embraces that formulaic nature and then takes it in another direction and then comes back to being formulaic Joker story at the end. Yeah. But it because does, that's but it, what... Yeah, yeah. But it's so well done. Mm. So fantastically done. Funny Bones picks up where the last issue left off. Harley leaves the Batman to his death in the vat as it fills with the same chemicals that made the Joker what he is today. The Batman reacts. He engages his costume into full protection mode and dons breathing apparatus. Then he sets a propulsion grenade off, pointing it directly at the floor. The resulting force fires the Batman up, out through the locked hatch and over onto the balcony. He heads back to the cave to analyse some data, but quickly realises something is wrong. Alfred is nowhere to be found. In the manor, he finds a tape recording of the Joker stating he's taken Alfred, as he needs a manservant for a special get-together. 
It's also implied that Alfred thinks he's wearing a blindfold when in fact the Joker has burned his eyes out with ammonia. Enraged, Bruce examines the tape which reveals the manufacturer's name, Gordon. He heads over to Commissioner Gordon's house to place him in protective custody, but Gordon succumbs to a Joker poison that lands him in hospital. Batman contacts Nightwing to tell him all he knows, but that Nightwing is not to tell the others about Alfred. Nightwing goes to the pipeline, whilst Batman heads to the reservoir, the scene of the first ever Batman-Joker confrontation, where the Joker is waiting. The Joker says he just wants to chat, and so nothing gets in the way, he's already taken the liberty of killing the few Gothamites he would have killed before the Batman stopped his plan. The Batman makes a move, but the Joker activates a trap, tying Batman up in chattering teeth. Then he tells the Batman he knows who he really is, and who all his little allies are, and he feels that they have ruined the Batman, spoiled him. And Batman knows it as well. The card led the way. And the Joker managed to write a ledger from the cave full of dirty little secrets. And within 72 hours, all the little bat birdies will be dead, and the Batman will have killed them. This issue picks up exactly where the last one left off. There Which are, most of them do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one particular, no bones are thrown to new readers. Mm. Which I thought was a bit odd, given that the cover of this issue is the one that's being used to promote the series. I can imagine some people picking this up thinking this is part one. A lot of the promotional material was also the co- the standard cover to the last issue as well. Was it? Yeah. See, that's the, what the cover of this, the, the movie poster thing, was primarily the one I saw. Yeah. So I did all right, fair enough. It's great that it begins in media res, though. There isn't even an opening splash page in this one, mm. is it? It starts running and keeps going. Yeah. And just barrels on through, picking up exactly where the last one left off with Batman trapped in the van. The only time it, it stops for any kind of break is like halfway through the issue with a dialogue exchange, and then it jumps back again. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say the only time it lets up that is when they get to wear manor, but we'll get to that in a minute, because that's one of the best scenes in the book. Yeah. Absolutely marvellous example of tense pacing. Uh, Capello's art is a little bit of Frank Miller, a little bit Todd McFarlane, even a little bit John Romita Jr., especially on that page, on page two, mm. where Batman escapes from the vat, but it's not just a series of swipes. The art is telling the story in a different way to the text. Yeah. But both are complimentary. Oh, yeah, whilst he's breaking out, the, his his dialogue is telling about the formula. Yeah. Well, about the, the camera. While yeah. he's breaking out of the vat, his mind is working on the problem. Yeah. I mean, you can argue psychologically that's how he keeps cool. Mm. His mind is doing something to keep away from the idea that I could be dying now. That's what his dialogue is about later on in the issue. Yeah, but without Alfred, he's not got that little voice, that little soothing voice, which is a brilliant, psychologically brilliant, again and again, we'll we'll get to that one together. I was was reading this dialogue and he says what all the elements are to the chemical. Mm. He misses out 50% of them. Does he? If you add up the numbers, he only goes up to about 50. Well, he knows them. (laughs) He's not expecting us to sit there with a pen. (laughs) and work out and make our own Joker Venom. (laughs) (laughs) Walk into Boots, the chemist, and go, I want these, please. What are you going to do with these? I'm going to make Joker toxin. There's there's a few uh, government watch lists you can go on after that. (laughs) (laughs) MI5 showing up at the door later on. Mr. Mr. Leyland, what were you buying today at Boots, the chemist? Uh, This is textbook, how you pace an issue. We both frequently railed against padding in comics. Mm. Superfluous panels or pages 
that exist purely to multiply the page count for the inevitable collected edition. And if you listen to back episodes, you'll hear us ramble on about that quite a bit. Here, though, Snyder wonderfully paces Batman's arrival back at the cave. This is what I was on about earlier on. And his realisation that Alfred is missing and the subsequent search of Wayne Manor for Alfred. It's almost two pages of no dialogue as Bruce finds the tape and yet it's absolutely gripping Mm. storytelling. It's tense as hell as he slowly walks through the manor and floorboards creak and doors creak and it's just this big empty nothing without Alfred there to make it warm. And then his rage when he finds out that the Joker's got him is Oh, that was really the, the tensest bit. It's just because the the bit with the acid yeah. on, on Alfred, and then you don't see him again. No, we don't see him again until the last chapter. Yeah. So there's that going, oh, bugger, they've cut off Joker's face. Could they really have yeah, done this? Yeah, they really... Because you and I were talking about this comic every month. Oh, yeah. Because we were both like... Do you think they they have? Yeah. And I was, no, they won't have done that to <laughs> Alfred. But at the back of my head, I was like, have they? They could have done. Yeah, d- yeah. And then, see, this is one of those things, there are people who will say that, well, they're not going to kill Alfred. I think the minute you say that, you need to stop reading serialised comics. Yeah. Because you've got to the point where it doesn't matter what story they're telling, you're not buying into it anymore. Yeah. Because you're, you've got to the point where you know how this stuff works. That is they're not going to do this. Getting in the way of your Yeah, to a franchise yeah. character. That it stops you enjoying the book. Mm. And the fact that Snyder managed to make both you and I, yeah. deeply cynical me, <laughs> sit there for a minute and go, have they really blinded Alfred? Yeah. Is a testament to how good this story was. Mm. That we both bought into that. Yeah. Is absolutely fantastic. Did you get the visual reference on this one? Nope. The stereo. He's, he's a little stereo player. Is the Joker's face? Yeah. Yes! Excellent! So is there one of them in every issue? Uh, to be honest, I've only actually seen those two. But there is the slight one with uh, yeah, 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 the graphic equalizer is green. Yeah, the, the, eyes, the, the eyes are the, the, the volume dials. And the points in different directions. Yeah, and there's a, the, there's a red tape player. Yeah, that's fantastic. I do like how the Joker leaves him a message on cassette. On cassette, yeah. <laughs> the Joker's an analog kind <laughs> of guy. Yeah, is what it is. In the scene with Gordon, obviously references Killing Joke. Mm. I thought New 52 was a Ground Zero reboot. Oh, I'm pretty sure they mentioned that. <laughs> oh yeah, Killing Joe must have happened because yes, Barbara Gordon's, Barbara Gordon's recovered, yeah. hasn't she? So, you know. Anyway, Gordon bleeding out is absolutely chilling. Oh yeah. And it gets a full page splash and again, you're not, you're not reading this going, that doesn't need a full page splash, that's padding. You're reading it going, for God's sake! He only really used the splash pages for Maximum impact. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely right. There's, it's followed up, like Michael said earlier on, it stops. It doesn't stop dead, it doesn't stop the momentum of the story. It's still tense, but yeah. there's the little... We take a breather, yeah. essentially, for Batman and Nightwing to have a chat. Notable about this, they have a chat like real people. Yeah. Batman's not Batman the dick. Nightwing's not the angry young man who's pissed off at his mentor. They have a proper conversation that reads yeah. like a conversation between real adults and the, the, the code talk they use where Batman's trying to yeah Batman's trying to compartmentalise yeah. he's trying to keep 
the Batman and the Bruce Wayne stuff separate. The fact that he's got Alfred, yeah. he constantly refers to him as Bruce Wayne's butler. Or as Pennyworth. Or as Pennyworth. He never calls him Alfred until Nightwing calls him out on it. Yeah. And then Batman snaps and he says, look, I don't give a damn about the code. I'm concerned as well, but this is how I deal mm. with it. If I start calling him Alfred, I've cracked and I can't focus on what I've got to do. Yeah. So by calling him Bruce Wayne's butler, by calling him Pennyworth, He's I can separate the yeah. lives and I can focus on what I've got to do. And it's absolutely marvellous. We learn Batman is still keeping secrets from him. Yeah. But in a, in a masterstroke, we sympathise with why he's keeping a secret from Nightwing mm. and why he wants to keep a secret from the rest of the family. Yeah. As opposed to being this stubborn bonehead that he has been in numerous stories in the past, we fully empathise with Batman's position here mm. and why he's doing it. Yeah. Absolutely uh, great. Some of the dialogue were the, the discussing how the Joker targeted Alfred. Was it because he knows who Batman is? Yeah. Or was it Batman Incorporated? Do you think that's this relying on Batman Incorporated, Incorporated being there, or that helping it? Um, I, well, I've not read Batman Incorporated. I know... We don't need to. Yeah, that's sure. what I'm saying. I don't need to know to read this story. But if it never existed, or if they did keep the Morrison stuff separate to this, would this still work as well? No, it wouldn't, because it's taking the whole tapestry and weaving it into one story. Without that Batman Incorporated subplot, he's got no reason to go after Alfred. Yeah. Other and than it, it's it's what I mentioned in Dreadful the Birthday Dear Joker. Why was Alfred on the Joker's hit list? Yeah. Whereas here, Bruce is adamant he's going after Alfred because of Bruce Wayne's connection to Batman Incorporated. But that's what Batman thinks, yeah. Yeah. Well, and we never find out if he's right. Which really. is one of the best things about this. We this never. Story. It, that is never definitively answered, is it? In the story, they don't Did answer the any questions. No. Yeah, the answer's some. Oh, some. But yeah, they but leave enough loose ends yeah. for you to piece it together yourself. The important ones, they leave you, leave yeah. you hanging. Well, how much of that is he's going to answer them later down the line? Or how much is that? Or how much is he just going to leave them hanging? Yeah. Not everything needs to be tied up in a neat little bow. Mm. And it, as this proves, because it's a great story. Unlike Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker, we've mentioned that Alfred here, there's a reason for him kidnapping it. Bruce Wayne is publicly being seen as being the power behind the throne supplying Batman with equipment and supplies. And essentially this has made Batman, Bruce Wayne, sorry, a target. Yeah. Being associated with Batman Incorporated. This seriously seems like a really stupid idea. Hasn't Bruce essentially painted a target on himself by saying, I'm the guy that funds Batman? Yeah, but the, the address that in Batman Incorporated... Do they? What's the, the what's the reason? In the issue we covered, where Wayne Towers does get attacked... But Alfred takes care of them, and they've got all the bat robots protecting them as well. I know, but I still can't wrap myself around why I bother having a secret identity then. Well, there is that the, the Clayface two part that came after Death of the Family, where Clayface came after Bruce Wayne, knowing that he could get to Batman that way because he'd incorporated. And they then had that. Oh no! If it, it, I'm captured as Bruce Wayne, how can I be Batman? Well, yeah, I can't help but think that on the one hand, Batman Incorporated is an intriguing idea. But Bruce publicly saying, I fund Batman, may not have been very bright. Well, Tony Stark had... Stark? Stark. Stark admitting he was Iron Man was the same thing, really. No, because Peter Tony Parker Stark... saying that he supplies Spider-Man uh, was Parker's the same thing, thing Civil as well. War was stupid. Not, not Civil War, the Horizons uh, stuff. 
Did Peter Parker... Oh, yeah, Peter Parker makes Spider-Man's equipment. Yeah, it's yeah. dumber than dirt, really, isn't it? A little bit. When you think about it. But let's not think about it. Let's just move <laughs> on. The, there's a scene in the middle where Batman rides to meet the Joker that takes place entirely in uh, Batman's head, and it's not the usual grim and gritty bollocks that we got in Detective Comics number one. It's actually Batman musing on his own fears and how he contacts Alfred when he's on his way to a case because Alfred reassures him and makes him feel comfortable. And he hasn't got that here. He's not got somebody to call. He's not got that soothing voice at the other end of the line. Mm. It's It's a fantastic page where nothing happens except Batman is riding his motorbike. It's all character. It's yeah. all character-based drama. It's all, this is what Alfred means to him. Yeah. And him actually admitting this, even if it's only to himself, is a huge step forward from 90s grim and gritty. Well... Doesn't need anybody, Batman. It's still one of our problems with Arkham Origins. I'm going to keep banging on about it because I dislike that much. <laughs> one of the things they got wrong was the relationship between the two. Yeah. See, I don't mind Alfred being snarky. I like that, Alfred. I think when Alfred is only snarky, yeah, it completely undermines the relationship. It's the same when Batman yells at Alfred or just ignores him or acts like a downright ass yeah. towards him. Yeah. Batman would listen to Alfred. That's yeah. what he's there for. Mm. Even when he's taking the mick out of him. Yeah. Because that's what our friends do to us. It's our friends who deflate our pomposity. Mm. That's what they're there for. Your friends are the ones that keep you grounded. That's what Alfred does. The final confrontation between the Joker and the Batman is actually scurry as hell. It's my favourite scene in the entire story. In all five parts? Yeah. The Joker skips all the usual foreplay. He's already killed the few people he would have gotten away with killing Mm. before Batman stopped him. And he's moved on to the real reason for being here, that he and the Batman have gotten away from their roots and the allies and hangers-on are preventing he and Batman from just being able to concentrate on each other. This does play into the whole Joker loves Batman relationship Yeah, that has been played with before, mm. which I'm not sure I, about. I don't like it, but I think it's played really well in this. It's played really well in this story. Mm. Again, proving there is no such thing as a bad idea, only bad executions. Because one of the things of that ideas. makes it work as well was how Batman is aware of that relationship and is terrified of it. Yeah, but uses it to his advantage. Yeah. Later oh, on. At the end, when yeah. he... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's an exquisitely paced issue. Mm. It tightens all the screws that they put in place last issue and ups the stakes. Snyder successfully weaves new strands in the tapestry of the Batman-Joker feud, referencing either Batman 1 or Legends of the Dark Knight 50 or the man who laughs, depending on your point of view, and bringing the whole conflict full circle, despite the fact that none of this was supposed to happen in New 52. But we're moving on from that. Who gives a toss? Forget five-year timeline. Although Joe here mentions Batman hurling a batarang at him in their first encounter, that didn't happen in Man Who Laughs. Mm. So is he referencing another version of that that we've never seen? Or, or is he writing his own? Or is he making it up? Yeah. There's also a little bit of contradiction in that Gordon says the Joker is random and you can only react, whereas everyone else at least has a motive. In The Clown at Midnight, the Batman is able to see patterns even in the Joker's behaviour. And even here in this story, there's a plan. There's a very definitive plan. But that's what... That, that plan's based on what he's done before, though. Yeah. 
So, well, the thing with that is, there is a very definite plan, but it's a plan that only makes sense to the Joker. When he shows it to the Riddler, the Riddler doesn't know what it is. That's but true. The Joker does. Yeah. All right. That makes. So he has. So that's when the Batman goes into his meditative state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From Nanda Parbat. From Nanda Parbat. Yeah. Absolutely right. The dialogue is taut and believable, particularly the conversation between Batman and Nightwing. Snyder delivers an excellent curveball here, making the reader think he's doing the standard Batman is a dick portrayal, only to have us see at the last minute that Snyder is writing a fully realised and realistic Batman, a man who feels. He doesn't know what the Joker is up to, and admitting that is painful. He suspects things rather than deduces them, and he's fully feeling the pain of having Alfred taken away. In other words, this is a very human Batman. The art is magnificent. The writing of the Joker is also very believable. I've mentioned in the past the highest praise I personally give a comic is that it's getting to me so much I start reading it out loud, mm. replete with funny voices, as if these people were real. And I read this entire issue out loud. I read the entire series as Mark Hamill and Kevin, Kevin Conroy. Conroy and I think that made, it, for me it made it so much better yeah especially the, the dialogue between Batman and Joker on the bridge scene yeah the last five pages is brilliant yeah absolutely uh, fantastic it's, it's something that works better if you slow down and, yeah. yeah slow down read it properly read it as real dialogue this isn't comic book dialogue mm. is it this is well, real it, it the, works for all you're complaining about comics being movies this it does have a very cinematic feel to it I disagree it works because it, the dialogue reads as real yeah except maybe stuff like you sick maniac that's sometimes <laughs> a little bit over the top but it's definitely a comic book yeah you couldn't tell this story as a movie because it relies on past confrontations with the Batman mm. and it works as a new reader who has a passing familiarity with Batman and the Joker. Yeah. But I don't think it would work as a film. I'm not saying it would work as a film, it just has a cinematic feel to it. Uh, alright, alright, I'll go with that. I still think it, it's very... He's writing a comic, he's not writing a film script. Yeah. But it does feel like it would work as a movie or TV show. Mm. Alright, I'll go with that. Because I, I don't think Scott Snyder's writing it as a movie. No, no, which no. is one of the things I don't like mm. people who are writing it to get a film deal mm. this doesn't feel like he's writing a movie script he's writing a comic yeah and doing a very good job of it you know I have to say one of my favourite things about well all the Batman run really the colouring oh yeah the colouring's magnificent yeah especially the, the, the difference between it like what they've done with Zero Year now and they made it all brighter and more neo I guess yeah and the 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 noir, the, the stuff on the bridge in this issue is dark blues. Yeah, dark I, I noticed your reaction to that that opening. Yeah, the splash pad. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> anyway, issue fifteen. Uh, the cover is it's pretty straightforward. It's a profile shot at the top of Batman's head. Inside where the brain should be crouches the Joker. I think it's great. Uh, yes, not a lot to it. It does. It doesn't need to be. A but lot it does to the it. job. Yeah, because it's it's a psychological confrontation between Batman and the Joker. I like simplistic covers, and that is making the most of it. Well, the simple and the simplistic. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a different thing. But here's the kicker. 
The police arrive on the scene, but the Joker has somebody in the surrounding trees that opens fire. The Batman lunges for the Joker, but the Joker's allies open up some napalm on the Dark Knight's ass. Oddly, the Batman survives this, but his escape from the chattering teeth involves him slipping out of his gloves. And his punch to the Joker's face has exposed his bruised knuckles to toxin. The Batman blacks out. He awakens in Wayne Manor, his family around him. They heard what the Joker said, the card. They demand to know the answers. Bruce is adamant the Joker cannot know the secret. The card he referred to is a playing card, adhered to the underside of the boat, the Batman used in that first confrontation at the reservoir. He later found that the card in the cave. There are too many variables for the Joker to have found his way there. But it's not impossible, says Nightwing. The Batman leaves. He has a lead to follow. The Joker used a cell phone to remote signal the men in the trees. The cell was a burner phone, but was sold to an Arkham guard who was being blackmailed by the Joker into buying the phone. And so were the other guards with families, all turning a blind eye to the goings on at Arkham over the last year. The changes in the building. All, the guard says, for the Batman. Michael mentioned it before we started doing the synopsis, that I just gasped audibly, I hope when I opened the page to this comic. I'm not a fan of the Joker who's had his face removed. I but this am. first page is magnificent. Yeah. Isn't I, it? I think a lot of it is because of the face being cut off. Yeah. I, well, it's not it's the uh, it's the colouring. Yeah. As well. It, it's an entirely black page. Entirely black background. With the Joker just kind of appearing from out of the shadows. It's an absolutely stunningly scurry piece of artwork. The eyes... Yeah. Just gawping at you from with out of the blackness. The dialogue talking about them. With the, the dialogue time. talking about his pupils and his actions and his eyes. The text is exceptionally complimentary to the artwork, but rooted in character. This entire opening monologue about studying pupils shows how detailed the Batman's knowledge is, how much what he does is subtle detective work, how much attention he pays to his surroundings, but it also casts a light on the Joker. Ironic given the depiction on the splash page Mm. his pupils don't move they're little tiny black dots there is no contraction or expansion and getting a reaction is a big deal in this exceptionally well structured chapter this story point is brought back on the very last page mirrored storytelling (laughs) where Snyder where Snyder gives us the reason Batman is pondering the Joker's pupils this pays off beautifully Mm. In this one issue. One of the, the, the best things about that page as well is that's very definitely in Batman's head. Because on the next page, it start, it carries on from the last yeah. issue was. As the next page too carries straight on from where the it is. The first page is essentially Batman's mental image. Yeah. It's glorious, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely fantastic. But the writing and the art are just... This is... This is fantastic. When was the last time we were this excited over a comic? I don't, I don't I'm always excited over comics. When was the last time we were both this excited over know, a comic? Because it is one of those things. A lot of it does play into the fact that we were reading this monthly. And yeah. both of us were. You still are. Every month. every month it is one of the top titles that we pick up. Yeah. Before we read anything else. It has become the de facto thing as, as we've got through buying the monthly comics. More and more have fell by the wayside that I'm not buying anymore. Yeah. Because when they're starting to just lie on my bed for a month, next to the bed for a month, and I'm not interested in reading them, mm. then it's time to go. 
Yeah. And this always gets read one of the first. The only reason I didn't read Batman first this month was because, because I was in the middle it. of reading this. Well, we always argue over who gets it who first. Who gets Batman first? <laughs> the, again, Snyder's character. All character. The Joker's psychological manipulation of Harvey Bullock. Yeah. When, um... I was looking for you, Harvey! When I was in the station. And Harvey wasn't there. And the Joker just twists that knife. Uh, yeah. It's brilliant. Couldn't it be that you were round the corner at the old dive? Beneath the Triple X Theatre? The undertow? Pulling you away? Tell me you weren't, Harv. Tell me you haven't fallen off the wagon. Say it ain't so! And Harvey's speechless. Well, the... Yeah, well, the Joker is being terrified. He knows everything. Yeah. With the scene with... This is what he's been doing for the last Where he he says uh, that he hides his last pack of cigs under his bed. And and Commissioner Gunner looks absolutely terrified because he's right. He's been in his house. Yeah. Because it parlays into the first issue where Gordon and Bullock are discussing packing and smoking. Yeah. And Barbara's found everywhere he hides his cigs. He says, except except for the one one that Joker has found. Joker's found it. And the fact that he's under his bed as well. Yeah, he's been in his house. That pays off as well where if he's been into Gordon's house and he knows where Bullock has, has he been into the cave? Yeah. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, there's so much to this, it's fantastic. Um, my only issue, really, essentially, this: who were these allies who were doing this bombing raid from the trees? They are never mentioned again. They're the Arkham Guards. Are they? Yeah. Batman says that he, he found out the guy he pays a visit to because of the cell phone. Right, so he does. He traces them because of those guys. Yes. Yes, he does. You're absolutely right. Mm. Yeah, spot on. Well done. Excellent. I didn't get... All right, then, why did Batman take his gloves off? Uh, to slip past the wires, I'm guessing. You reckon? Yeah. That's a little bit woolly. Well, I mean, if you look at how bulky they are. Um, yeah. See, I don't like this new bulky bat suit. Uh, I hate it in Arkham Origins. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind it because it's not bulky, but it's protective and you can see why it's like that. Yeah, it's not as bulky in here as it is in Arkham Origins, where it's just ridiculous and would actually impede his movements. Yeah. It's, but, he's, he's essentially as bats. Yeah. And my thinking with this was, well, he had to take his gloves off because he has to punch the Joker and therefore he has to get his Joker venom into his, his knuckles. Yeah. <laughs> because the script says it has to happen. Yeah. Basically. And it's one of those, if that's the case, give Snyder a pass. Because mm. the rest of this is just so damn good. Yeah. That, all right, I'll let that bit slide. I'm not too the, bothered about the little, There's some great bits with oh, the, the yeah. gags on the Joker's face. Oh, even yeah. in the tie-in well, issues. Well, the visual of Batman just coming out of the flames yeah. at the joke. I mean, on the one hand, how the hell has he just survived that? Mm. But on the other, it's an utterly marvellous visual of him just lunging out of the flames at the joke. Even the Joker has a moment there of, oh! Yeah. The, oh, I don't think I, I, don't think I, I think I've underestimated how angry I've made him. Mm. And yeah, he punches him Isn't in it? the face. He punches his face right off. Literally. And his skin moves. That's, well, one of which the, is gross. They did a really cool stuff with his face. Um, even in the times, there's an issue of Batman and Robin where Damien punches his face off. It sticks to a wall, and when he puts it back on, it's upside down. Right. Snyder draws it magnificently, though, as well, doesn't he? Mm. You look at that, the next page, Batman picks him up by the throat, and his face is slipped, so his nose is underneath the skin, and his eyes are hidden yeah. where the eye slits are. It's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a bit of the face that, I, uh, you know the gimmick they've done for the hardback? Yeah. Where 
the, the essentially it's the cover to number thirteen, yeah, isn't but it? The Joker's face is the the dust jacket, and yeah. you pull that off, and underneath it's the Joker's muscle. Yeah, I think that ruins a lot of it because a, lo- a lot. It's a bit the, too on the nose. Yeah, we're a lot of this. You never see him with his face off. No, you never. When you, you, never you do, know. he's all, he's in shadow or off panel. Yeah, to, to, to Snyder's credit, he does. you never see the Joker with his face missing. Yeah, I, How did he get his skin back if it was in... He, he steals it. Gotham, does he? Uh, yeah. Right. The, the, the implication at the end of the uh, detective backup is like... Is that he stole it back? Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure there was another backup, I can't remember now, where he, he, he... I remember that one where he goes inside and literally gets his face back. I thought that... That one didn't conclusively state that he, he got his skin back. No, I remember that happening. Unless he did it when he went into the police building at, at the beginning of it. Went into the evidence room and got it back. Yeah. I hope he didn't kill that young copper, that new rookie. He killed them all. Quite like her. <laughs> she was quite nice. Excellent nightmare sequence as well. Did you missed that out in the synopsis. Well, it's not really relevant but to the story, is it? I guess. It's a synopsis, not a page-by-page recap. his mental... To the Batman's yeah. mental state, it's very important. And it, it was one of those things that messes with you as a reader on a monthly basis as well. You're, yeah. Because uh, if you're reading this for the first time, I've always woken up, oh, bugger, what have they done to Alfred? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so he basically has a nightmare in the middle of the comic where he wakes up and everything's fine. Yeah. And the Bat family are all around his bed. Everything yeah, yeah, is too fine It's all great. Then Alfred comes in and Alfred's had his first peeled off yeah and he's wearing it like the Joker and then starts swinging an axe at everybody and then he wakes up again yeah so it's a, it's a lovely little fake with out with the colour and with them all being in costume yeah. because when he wakes up and everything's normal and brightly lit it's too normal yeah it is I, I didn't think it was relevant for the synopsis yeah to be honest with you we can talk about it now it is a great nightmare sequence and then there's another bit where Snyder basically has Batman confront the entire family. The art's brilliant again. I love the body language yeah. of the characters. Capullo does a brilliant job. The Nightwing is stra- ramrod straight. Yeah. Damien's kind of a little bit slouchy because he's a teenager. Tim Drake's hands behind his back. He's quite proper. Batgirl's a proper girl. Yeah. In the way that she's standing. Jason doesn't even look at them. Jason's all hands crossed, leaning yeah. against the wall. Jason's the moody teen, isn't he? Yeah. Jason's the one that sits in the corner with his foot against the wall smoking. Yeah. <laughs> the French one. Yeah. He's the one who sits in the back. He doesn't even look at them. Yeah, and he—he's a bit of an ass in in this scene, but he's rightly pointing out the flaws. Well, that's that's. I've got that exact no. I mean, I've only read a few issues of Nightwing and Batgirl in New Fifty Two, and I know nothing about this new iteration of Tim Drake or Jason Todd. But this is written that everybody's point of view is valid. Yeah, is seemingly valid. Mm. Everyone here, even Jason who Damien really doesn't seem to like. No. But even Jason's point of view is valid. Yeah. The questions he's asking... Well, the thing with Jason's the only... Because of Jason dislikes Batman, he's the only one who does to challenge him. Yeah, Nightwing will really challenge him. Yeah. But it's a, it's a different relationship, to be honest with you. I love that. I love the scene. I, lo- I think it's an absolutely great scene. Mm. Batman's detective work here is fantastic. Yeah. That he deduces that, all right, the Joker signalled all those guys in the trees, he must have done it somehow. He works out that it was a cell phone, and then he follows the pattern. Mm. He follows that trail. What cell phone? Burner cell phone. Where was the burner cell phone bought? It was bought here. Who was it bought by? Yeah. And it's a wonderful, excellent piece of deductive reasoning 
on behalf of him that isn't belaboured it isn't obvious mm. which is one of the problems you sometimes have in a Batman detective story it's a little bit too obvious Yeah. but when you read it and he, he does it all in one page mm. when you read it you're going ah right okay that makes sense I'll yeah. buy into that Veronica Mars does that all the time <laughs> oh there's a nice little panel here where once again Jason's being a bit of an ass and Batman looks really annoyed and you can see on that panel Dick is pushing Bruce away because yeah, to stop Dick him. is stopping him yeah. from going for Jason because um, Jason says to get like the cave secure mm. and Bruce is very it's secure and uh, Jason just says tell that to Alfred Yeah, and Dick's holding Bruce back because like it was uncalled for, but he's right at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's, like, again, it's a dickish thing to say. But it's not but wrong. But he's not wrong yeah. to say it. But, uh, yeah, I'd see, I'd not notice that, but that's a lovely little visual thing where Dick is, is forcibly stopping Bruce from punching yeah. his face off. Because the, the, the tenseness is brought into the family moments as mm. well, which was one of the big things about this. The, the bigger payoff at the end was it tore apart the family. Ironically, at a time when Bruce had made his peace with having them all close to him. Yeah. It's, it is, it is, it's absolutely fantastic. And there's some nice little bits on the page before this where he goes after the guy. It's all the point of view shot as, you know, where Batman glided and you can see his yeah, shadow you can see the, the shadow yeah. of his cape on all the buildings. Yeah, it's, 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 we cannot say enough good things about it. The the payoff of the opening page on the final page when Batman arrives at Arkham when talking to the Batman the Joker's pupils expand mm. which links back to the first page yeah which means that the Joker has some residual affection for the Batman mm. which yeah um that last page as well the, the visual gag again with Arkham being the Joker's face yeah but yes the, that's possibly a, a reference to Arkham Asylum yeah it's it's an absolutely great chapter nothing really new happens oh no it is it's the first page of Arkham Asylum isn't yeah it? where he walks in yeah and also reading this on a monthly basis with Batman going in and then that was really tense because Batman's going he's into he's gone into yeah. Arkham nothing really new happens in this one but a lot happens at the same time but it's not to say it's thoroughly enjoyable. Everything that happens in this one is kind of reiterated in the next issue. Yeah. If there is some such a thing as a superfluous chapter, mm. it's this one. But, but at the same time, it isn't. It's setting up. Yeah. The falling apart yeah. of the family, which You've, is the longer last, longest it's, lasting. It's setting up the third act. Yeah. Essentially, the first act was the opening salvo. And then the second act is the middle of this issue, arguably, when he wakes up from the nightmare. Yeah. That's the beginning of the third act. And this is all the, well, all the beginning of the end of the I'd second act. the third act. act is once he's in Arkham. Yeah, so this is setting up act three. Yeah. Essentially. It's, Batman essentially tells the Bat family what the Joker told him last issue. We do learn the Joker has been watching them all for the past year and planning this little escapade and altering Arkham thanks to his blackmailing of the guards that work there. Snyder manages to milk some nice tension out of the scene where Batman is confronted by his allies and their obvious concerns, and he does an excellent job of not making Bruce come across as an asshat. Yeah. Which, I thought that was what was masterful about that scene. We as the reader fully understand Bruce's motivations and we relate to it while still acknowledging that what Jason particularly, but what everyone else is asking is valid. You can empathise with every one of yeah, them. Yeah, they all have valid points of view. 
the opening and the closing where the Batman talks about studying the Joker's pupils when talking to somebody or talking to him and then closing and opening depending on the person's emotions lead to this final page payoff where Batman manages to get the Joker's small pinprick pupils to react again it leads into this whole the Joker is in love with Batman thing which I've got to say is a relationship trait I never understood obsessed (laughs) with yes but in love with him Mm. I do welcome other opinions on this. I, I'm not so big on it, but I think if you can make it work... Like Which he does. This, ...then maybe it's not as bad. I know, but the problem with that is, I mean, this isn't Scott Snyder's fault, is does this become a defining trait in the hands of lesser writers? No. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't think so. Snyder himself has said that every writer has their own Batman. doesn't matter if you're writing it in a continued run... When you write Batman, you make him your own and you have a different Yeah, one. a good writer does. Yeah. So, so that just worship at the feet of Frank Miller. Yeah. Not so much. Issue 16 has the Joker bearing a striking resemblance to Heath Ledger's famous poster. Standing in a cave wearing Batman's right glove, Robin's vest, Alfred's overcoat, Nightwing's mask, and has Batgirl's glove hanging from his belt. It's not the best cover of the series. No, but it gets the job done. Yeah, yeah, it gets the job done, by which I mean you turn the page quickly to dive right back into the story. (laughs) Castle of Cards begins with the Batman entering Arkham to find the other guards, those without families that the Joker couldn't blackmail, dancing all garbed as Batman and the Joker. They are all rigged, but the Batman manages to save them with some quick thinking. The Joker is impressed, but the Batman has no time to waste and sets about locating the Joker. Cutting across the stables, he is greeted by the inmates, all equipped with shields and flaming swords as if knights of old. The Dark Knight engages in a long battle, but ultimately emerges triumphant and continues through Arkham, happening upon a royal tapestry created from flesh. The Batman realises the Joker has to be in Jeremiah Arkham's quarters, and he hasn't had enough time to prep, so other obstacles will be forthcoming. Correct, as usual, the obstacle takes the form of Mr. Freeze, Clayface and the Scarecrow, who the Batman takes out efficiently. Arriving at Jeremiah Arkham's quarters, the Batman fights the locked door. Through it, he can see the quarters decked out as a throne room, and inside, Bishop Cobblepot, Sir Edward the Strategist, with the Honourable Judge Dent presiding, and the Joker as his faithful court gesture. Keeping with the motif, the centre of the room has a chainsaw rigged with electrical current rising up from a stone. The Joker orders a guard dressed as Superman to raise the sword, and he is electrocuted for his troubles. The Batman breaks through the door and fires off a batarang, severing the cable to the chainsaw and preventing the Joker from murdering a lady dressed as Wonder Woman. But before he can reach the rogues, a cell bar drops down and CCTV screens turn on showing each of the Bat family beaten and bloodied. The only way to find out what has happened to them, the Joker tells the Batman, is to take your rightful place in the throne. The Batman sits upon the throne, actually an electric chair, as the Joker flips the switch. The opening is again stunningly marvellous. The Joker has had all the guards dancing for days, trapped behind polycarbonate glass that has wire mesh embedded within. In addition, they are stood in a few inches of water that is linked to an electrical current. The Batman shatters all the glass simultaneously with an EMP pulse, then tosses various balls into each cell that absorbs the water, saving everybody's life, which was uber cool. The first page... Like, a lot of the series relies heavily on you reading this for the first time. Yeah. Because you're questioning, is that Batman and the Joker? What's happened in between issues? Yeah. And then when you turn the page, you realise that it isn't. And, but then you see all the other 
Batman's and Joker's dancing around the only problem with this is he takes Batman out at the end of this issue so presumably on his way out the building the Joker killed all these people (laughs) yeah (laughs) so the Batman's (laughs) triumph here that I was really excited about that Batman managed to save everybody anyway because he doesn't free them from the cells he just just stops them from being killed but they can't get out the cells yet because the wire mesh is still in place yeah unless he he figures something about that out but we don't get any indication that he does do we hmm so, you know. Yeah. I was, oh, we saved somebody. Somebody remembers that Batman's <laughs> supposed to save people. Oh, the Joker killed them all on the way out. <laughs> Never mind. That Don't page go. with the horse, where it's just fire running Oh, yeah. Him. The, the visually, it's absolutely fantastic. We just see flame. And he's confused at the last of it. And then it's a horse on fire on the next page. Running at him. Yeah. Which, I felt a bit sorry for the horse. Oh, yeah. Gotta say. The fight that follows that in the darkness is, again, visually stunning. The horse on fire comes through the darkness, which is great. Because, yeah, Batman's very, what the hell's going on here? And then flaming swords just light up in a circle. And the Batman's crying, come on, then. Because he he gets to let out all of his anger. Yeah, all his pent-up aggression. He just gets to kick the crap out of all these people and it's two solid pages of Batman just kicking ass Mm. the bit where he punches the horse at the end is hilarious yeah Scott Snyder after that um (laughs) he did an he did an Amazon review did he which was hilarious it's of his own work no no no, no, it was for a t-shirt. Oh, right. And the design on the t-shirt was a horse. You know those, like, hand-drawn yeah. ones? It was a t-shirt with a horse on it. And Scott Snyder wrote a review on Amazon that said, I hate horses. I, I, draw, I, draw, a, I draw a Batman for DC, and I have Batman punch horses. But when I'm not allowed to have Batman punching horses, I have him punching bad guys. But I'm really pretending that he's punching horses instead. What does he have against horses? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it's brilliant. Like Michael said, psychologically, again, this is Batman just letting all his pent-up aggression out. And this is a, a Batman that is totally and completely and utterly angry. Mm. There are no quips, there's no gadgets. It's just unbridled rage. He's, he's not even in control. He, he does no, take a few hefty hits as well. Yeah, he's just livid mm. at this point. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, the Royal Tapestry that we mentioned yeah. in the synopsis is a lot very gross you, created well, by Dollmaker you only see a few of the people but when you actually look at the tapestry itself there's loads of yeah, bodies in it's that. one of those it took me a minute when I was reading this to actually look at it and study what it actually was well did you not see the heads on this page in the last uh, I wasn't really if you have a look at the last page you see the heads hanging from the roof yeah but the Batman's walking away from that but then he took because the tapestry's behind him is it? see I got that this was in the next room because he's running I got that this was in through the door on the last panel he's running away from them because that's that's what I thought the importance of them and that see I got that it was in the next room I mean you may be right I don't know it's not very clear that he's turned around then Mm. to be honest but anyway I I, it did take a minute for me to realise what he's done yeah and what the dollmaker's done here he's stitched real people together yeah and carved images in the flesh oh it's gross as well when Joker says that he said they should be dead but no the dollmaker said they should be alive and then they start talking on the yeah, last panel it's, it is but the thing is it is gross but it isn't played for sensationalism mm. the fact that you do have to have a good look at it to actually see what he's done yeah is makes it not just violent for the sake of being violent. And it's bringing back plot threads they had over a year ago as well. Yeah. 
Uh, Coppola does a good job of being quite subtle about it, mm. I think. Depicted in the flesh and bringing our coverage full circle, like we yeah. planned it. I, I did a little bit. All right, <laughs> fair enough. Scenes from Laughing Fish. Yeah. Joker's Five-Way Revenge. Mm-hmm. Death in the Family. Despite yeah. the fact that I keep calling this <laughs> Death in the Family. And I'm pretty sure that's No Man's Land, Joker holding a baby. Yeah. Isn't that the baby that he was holding that he was going to shoot and then he threw it at Sarah Essen and then Sarah Essen died to catch the baby and he killed her? I have no idea. So basically, No Man's Land happened in the five-year timeline. Yeah. Despite the fact that No Man's Land clearly takes place over an entire <laughs> year in the No Man's Land storyline. No. Oh, it does. No, I'm thinking, could No Man's Land have now been the blackout year, which is the third chapter of Zero Year? I suppose so. Mm. I suppose it could be. But it's, again, oh, five-year timeline, who cares? No Man's Land as it reads It's a six-year timeline. Because there is no Azriel anymore. Yeah. So, whatever. Nobody gives a time. Or is there? Kelly Jones doing an art piece for Detective 27 with Azriel in it. Okay, fair enough. Loved the next page. Absolutely yeah. adored. Two pages. The Joker's obstacles are Mr. Freeze, Clayface, and the Scarecrow. Which that bit with Gordon again is another first reading thing. Mm. And Batman just two pages just takes them all out. Yeah. This is a Batman taking. He's had enough of your crap, mm. quite frankly. The final confrontation. It also shows how cool he is. Yeah. How cool Batman is. And, but, and are the bits where Joker's panicking yeah. for the intercom. He's where he's like, yeah, I'm not quite ready for you just yet. And he's yelling at like Harvey Dent and them inside. Come, move that, move this. Uh, the final confrontation is magnificent as the Joker wins. Yeah, this was pretty decent with all the backups so far haven't been that important. No, no, the only no. one that really is all that important is the one in this issue. The Harley Quinn one was is moderately yeah, interesting, but the if you have read them, this issue has them pay off. Yeah, with all of them being in the. And what's gross as well is this issue also shows the Joker's face turning green. His face is slowly rotted over the entire series. So it has, yeah. It's, it's, it's green, though. It gets even greener in the next issue. This is a nice little colouring And it's a nice job. little passage of time. Yeah, uh, and it's another fantastic cliffhanger. Yeah. Of Batman in the electric chair, which is oh, also gross as he dribbles and blood and yeah. everything. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say about this one other than it's great. Mm. Uh, it's got to the point where Snyder just packed these stories so full, even in the trade waiting era. Each issue felt like it was building to something huge. Yeah. And the tension is palpable and the art's magnificent and it does what good serialised fiction should do. It makes you chomp at the bit for the next issue. Mm-hmm. Which we did. We did. So let's get to it. The cover to Batman 17 has the Joker dancing in full tuxedo with the Batman's bloodied and damaged costume. Again, it's alright. I really like it. It's a shame the Arrow adverts there, but I hate banner adverts on covers. Anyway. Yeah, they, they, they do that a lot and it is irritating. It does kind of rob the cover of some of its, uh, its glory. Mm. The punchline. The Joker has spirited the Batman away to the Batcave. All of the Bat family are there around the dinner table, each with bloodied bandages around their face and each sat before a silver cloche. The Joker engages the Batman in conversation as he reveals Alfred, still alive, but high on Joker toxin, and asks him to lift the serving bells aloft so the family can see they're just desserts. Under each, the severed face of each member of the team. 
as the Batman's anger boils, the Joker tells him not to get out of the electric chair, even though he knows he could easily escape, as the flints beneath the chair would ignite the table, leaving the Bat family to burn. The Joker continues to ask why the Batman never mentioned the Joker had been in the cave, and why he'd never just ended him. Oh, sure, the usual excuses apply that then the Joker would win and it's just a slippery slope then to killing all of them, blah, blah, blah. But the ugly truth is Batman just loves the Joker more than his little band of merry men. But now the Joker has the upper hand, all thanks to the little ledger he has. Now stand, says the Joker. Do it, or I will. The Batman stands and the entire family is engulfed in flame. However, no one knows these caves like the Batman, and as he stands, breaking loose of the electric chair as he does so, he fires an explosive grenade up, and the resulting explosion unleashes a torrent of water over the burning table. That's not funny! The Joker cries as he flees. The Batman unties the family, all faces still intact. Some sick joke. Nightwing tells the Batman to pursue the Joker, which reluctantly he does. However, as the Bat family come to, Batgirl notices the Joker's puppy has a glowing ear that explodes, covering them all with Joker toxin, and they begin to laugh maniacally. Batman pursues the Joker through the caves. As they fight, the Batman says, This time, no dancing around, no quarrel. This time we go further than ever before. The Joker stumbles near the waterfall, but the Batman catches him. You better go back, Bats, he cries. Your family's killing each other thanks to my new concoction. They'll figure it out, the Batman retorts. They make me stronger, and just as I figured you out, Joker, you don't want to know who I am, who they are, but this past year, whilst you were away, I deduced who you were, your family, your history, your name. As the Batman leans in to whisper the Joker's name, he slams the joy buzzer in the Batman's mouth and falls away into the waterfall, leaving only the dead skin that used to be his face wafting in the breeze. The family all recover, except for a bizarre isotope still in their system. Bruce is having the computer analysed as he tends to Alfred, who is making a recovery in the master bedroom. Bruce is awaiting the arrival of the family, but one by one they all call to say they can't make it. Dick calls in last, and Bruce says simply that he's sorry. Dick says he knows, and hangs up as he turns his bike away from the Wayne Gateway. The computer beeps, and Bruce sits alone. The isotope has been identified. Harnium. Original element symbol. Ha! Snyder and Capullo milk every out of tension out of the scene where the Joker lifts up the lids to reveal the cut-off faces. Oh, yeah. And for the first time reading it and you're going oh did oh did, really did it there is a slightly campy vibe to this in that they've all got the masks on yeah on the faces that have been cut off <laughs> never explain, does it ever explain how they did the faces or what they are I, I just think has he not just made a, a plastic mould of the face you know like they do in films when they yeah. cover them in gunk to make a face mould of them yeah. has he not just done that to them while they were unconscious maybe that's my thinking of it I like because them. you'll go on, go, on, go on no I was just going to say that would leave their skin feeling tingly as well yeah. every actor that you've ever seen have that stuff pulled off them has said the skin feels really tingly well he, he probably numbs them anyway with well that as well them, yeah. so yeah okay. I like how he's kept his, his two headed uh, his two headed puppet yeah 
But, so yeah, the two-headed tiger that was mentioned at the beginning of the story. Yeah. I called him a puppy in the, yeah. the synopsis, but it is. It's the two-headed tiger from the beginning of the story. Uh, proving how psychologically rich the Batman and his supporting characters are, the Joker here asks questions certain kinds of fans have been asking for years. Why doesn't Batman just kill him and be done with it? Mm. And the Batman offers up all the stock answers. But... For one, murder isn't that easy to people who aren't murderers. And yeah. Batman's not a murderer. As we've seen in stories written by people like Mike W. Barr, he's not a, he doesn't shed any tears if, someone if people else. dies in the course of what they're doing, yeah. but he doesn't actively murder anybody. Secondly, the minute Batman does that, Gordon has to take him down. Yeah. That's... That goes without saying. Thirdly, you just don't kill a quality villain like the Joker. It's not going to happen. So, again, that's another one of those. If you're asking why does he not just kill the Joker, maybe it's time you start reading Batman comics and and walked away for a bit. And read Nightfall. And read Nightfall, yeah. Go and read Nightfall, because it's dead good. And it'll answer your questions for you. Yes, it will. The Joker's line, that's not funny, was absolutely fantastic. That's the Joker breaking. Yeah, because it also pays into other stories we've covered in this series of, of shows, when yeah. it's not going the Joker's way... It stops being funny. Suddenly he's not got a sense of humour anymore. Nope. And the genocide starts. Yeah. And the genocide starts That's with you. Yeah, and it's it's brilliant. I love that line. Yeah. Because he's just... Essentially, he's thwarted him again. Yeah. And Joker's just not pleased. <laughs> that panel on the next page with uh, Bruce and Damien hugging each other is one of the best representations of the Damien... Bruce relationship, which is an utter shame because the next issue is the is an epilogue to um, Batman Incorporated. Well, Damien gets killed. Yeah. Aww. So you see that, and then he's dead in the next issue. That's a shame. Because mm-hmm. I didn't dislike Damien in this issue. I know yeah. nothing about Damien. I've yeah. never read Batman and Robin, so I don't know anything about that. I, I didn't dislike him. He's a bit of a snotty little brat, but yeah. he seems like a, a nice kid yeah. underneath his his snotty little bratness. Mm, I like but, how Bruce goes for Damien first as well. Well, Bruce is a little one, you know. Then he goes for Nightwing. Yeah. Which is fair. Favoritism. Yeah, that seems fair enough. Dick is the one as well who gets through to Batman and yeah. tells him to go after the Joker. Dick is the one who says, we'll be fine, go. You need to go and stop him. Yeah. Um, he does, he does it reluctantly, but he does it. We get the big fight scene at the waterfall. Which, which is marvellous. Yeah, well, it, it plays about with the inevitability of the Batman and Joker as well. Where Batman is prepared to end it, to break the inevitability, but the Joker escapes with his body not being found, and it's Again. not the Batman's fault. So Batman wants to end it, but doesn't. There was, when I was reading this, certainly for the first time, not when I was reading it, for the show but I was reading it for the first time I didn't get that Batman was bluffing I thought that oh, he, he was says he genuinely knows his name. at the point oh I, I didn't know about that I was yeah does he doesn't he but yeah. I didn't think he was bluffing about pushing him off the waterfall oh no me neither because like I said this is Batman wanting yeah, to end it because this is this is a Joker who has pushed him literally to the brink yeah he's come closer than anyone ever has mm. to breaking him without you know being a, an obvious bane Breaking him. Yeah, I'm talking more on a psychological level of breaking it. And I didn't. I didn't think he was kidding. No, no, no. I think he was going to shove him off this waterfall. But in, in regards to whether he knows his name or not, 
there's a bit of you that you, you can read it as he's bluffing, but in the longer thing with Zero Year as well and the Red Hood, you could also read that as Batman genuinely does know. Yeah. Well, I love the little smile on his face yeah. when he's saying it to him. You know? And when he when he starts calling him darling. Yeah. yeah. And when he leans into him, I'll whisper in your ear, darling. Yeah. And he's just winding him up now. He's using the, the Joker's joke against tactics him. against him. Yeah. yeah. It's great, isn't it? Mm. It's it's not a bad conclusion to the story. I've wavered on this each time I've read it. Originally I thought it was a damp squib. Yeah. And then I thought, well, actually, it's a perfect ending to a Joker story. It's... Because it's how Joker stories end. It has grown on me, especially the ending. But as he falls off the cliff, or into the, off the waterfall, I love how he's... You can see the Batman through his face. Yeah. And how... Through the eye holes. Yeah. Hand out on the the next page when Bruce looks through the notebook, it's empty and the Joker was the, the Joker was bluffing. There's yeah. nothing there. He doesn't know. Although he'd have to be pretty dense to not be able to put it together. After well, this. is that the Joker known and bluffing with the book, or was he bluffing about everything? Well, the he, Batman says in this, the Joker doesn't care who he is. Yeah, but he doesn't want Batman to know who he well, is. Whether he doesn't care or not, does he know anyway? Because it's very heavily implied that he knows who the rest of the Bat family are. Yeah, there is and a surely, lot of there is a lot of nods to the idea that he knows Barbara Gordon's Batgirl. Yeah, and it's not that much of a stretch to think that Bruce Wayne is a ten-year-old son who also hangs out with Batman. Well, that's what I'm saying. Even if he didn't know, at the end of this story he'd surely be able to piece it together. Like you said, the Damien connection. Yeah. But also the Dick Grayson connection. Mm. Dick Grayson, he's got Damien, who's now Robin. He's got a young ward who has grown up and left Nightwing. Yeah. He suspects Barbara Gordon of being Batgirl. It's not a big leap to be able to put together the other bits. No. So that's there is a lot of unanswered questions. And it's better for that And it well. is all the better for not tying everything up in a little bow. Yeah. Which is, it's great. Then Batman manages to cure Ralfred quite quickly. Well. Given that Joker Toxin is killed instantly in every other story he's ever he used it. doesn't show how much time has passed, but. I, I didn't get that it was that long. No, no. I, I think this is like the, the dialogue exchange between Bruce and Dick at the end of Night of Owls. Yeah. This is the same, but with Bruce and Alfred. Yeah, Alfred's. Just been really perturbed at the fact that he's bedridden. Yeah, I, I, and Batman, Bruce Wayne, is now his butler. Yeah. And Alfred's not impressed with it. I, like I, love, I love that line. Yeah. Take this back, sir, or heaven help me, I'll wrap this IV pole around your one ding for food, two for a drink, three for a proper <laughs> drink. I, I like the one where it's what in heaven's name is that fiery ball in the sky. <laughs> Where <laughs> he says go to hell at the end. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant. Mm. And then we get a lovely little scene where Bruce confesses to going seeing the Joker in Arkham as Bruce. Yeah. And the Joker looks right at him and doesn't care. Mm. He doesn't see him. He's not interested in him. He's only interested in Batman. And but, but the the dynamic between Alfred and Bruce changes. Yeah. Then the first page, they're, they're playfully bantering with each other. I mean, I don't get, I do get that Alfred's genuinely annoyed. Yeah. But the banter is playful and light, and Bruce isn't taking it seriously. And then when they do turn to having a serious conversation on the next page, Alfred's back to being the supportive rock. Yeah. And that's Alfred and Batman. He's not all snark. He genuinely does care about what he's doing. Well, with the, the little flashback bit. 
there is, there is a thing, though, where Bruce has made it very obvious who he is. Whether the Joker doesn't care or not, he still knows. Yeah. So, the Joker knows that Batman's Bruce Wayne, but doesn't care. So, you could, well, you could argue that. Well, you could also argue that it is drawn heavily in shadow, so he doesn't get a good look at his face. Yeah. So, again, it does work. If you want to read this and interpret that the Joker knows... Yeah. Until that's outright contradicted in a future story, that works. Mm. If you want to interpret this as the Joker doesn't know, until that's contradicted in a future story, that works. Yeah. There is um, some. There are some artists who have said that their interpretation, not drawers, writers, musicians, whatever, yeah. their interpretation of their own work is the least important. It's what each reader gets from it, or each listener, if it's music, or viewer, if it's film. Yeah. What they get from it is the important part. And I think Snyder has very wisely left it open to us to interpret it however we want to interpret it. Mm. I, don't, I don't read that he snaps his neck at the end of this, though. <laughs> well, no, can't you see the, the slight cowl shift? <laughs> yeah, that's totally what happened. Oh, it, it was really sad with the, the family breaking apart. I mean, in Nightwing's own title, he moves to yeah, a different state yeah, as well. Well, I think as well... Nightwing is the one who sticks with him, though. Nightwing's yeah. actually outside the gates. Yeah. And he's the one who changes his mind at the last minute and doesn't come in. Yeah. But he's the only one who actually talks to him. Well, Everyone else leaves no. I like that because it's the Dick-Bruce relationship. Yeah, it's, it's Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, isn't it? But it's, it's another thing where the Joker won because of that. Because he split the family up. Yeah. And I also like the bit where he left... A trace in each and every one of them with the hanium. Yeah, ha. it doesn't do anything, but Bruce it's will the, always know that that it's the, the Joker's left his mark. Yeah, well, it's, he's been very good at exploring the Bruce di- dynamic through his, his entire run, mm. and it's a good relationship, and he explores it well. It's not quite father and son, but it's but he's, more he's, than big brother, little brother, and it's not quite friends as well. It's yeah, all. it's 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 all of them and none of them. Yeah, and it's. Yeah, the Joker leaves this story as he's done lots of others plunging to a supposed death but one of the undercurrents in this story as with Laughing Fish is the Joker doesn't care who he is it's a foregone conclusion he's going to return whether he'll get his distinctive face back's another question well someone else has got it now Have they? the Joker's daughter uh, who's who? that uh, she was introduced in the, the, the villain's month. month I've never read any of it but she's a girl who has Joker's face See, I read a couple of Villains months, and then I got to one issue, I can't even remember which one it was, I think it was the Bane one, Yeah. drawn by Graham Nolan, and I'm halfway through it, literally halfway through it, and I go, I've read this before, Yeah. and I closed it and turned it down and never picked up another one. Fair enough. Because it was like, why am I paying money for something I've already read? Yeah. I don't get it. Uh, expertly paced, extremely tense, is a little similar in its conclusion to past Joker story outcomes, but the Joker's obsession with his past brings together references for a number of old stories, most of which we've covered here, Mm. which bring a nice symmetry to this exploration of the Joker. The final confrontation is interesting for what it doesn't say, as for what it does. Would he have taken that final push and killed the Joker? I'm all... I am actually of the opinion he probably was at that point where he would have just pushed it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think he was kidding at this point. It's also fascinating narratively that the Batman's ultimate trust of his family comes at a time when the Joker has forced a wedge between them. Like you say, the Joker wins yeah. in a small way, at the very least. Or a big way to Bruce. Or a big way to Bruce Wayne, yeah. 
The Joker in this story is very different to the Joker of other tales we've covered. He's clearly a homicidal maniac. This Joker isn't even borderline crazy. He's a complete nut job. And Snyder writes this version exceptionally well. He's complimented by Capullo's excellent art. And as we've said, this title has been one of the standouts of the New 52, much better than any of the sister back titles. And one wonders how much of this is because Snyder embraces the past, even in this nebulous way, rather than kicking it all out and starting over. Proof that continuity doesn't have to be a crutch in the hands of a good writer. It can be the springboard to better stories. God, that was good. Mm. I'm glad we decided to do that. Because this wasn't originally part of the plan, was it? No. And so it ends. Our little slice of madness and a few pieces of Joker heaven. It's rare that a single character, especially a villain, becomes a cultural icon, recognised across the world by comics and non-comics readers alike. Whilst the Batman, along with the Flash and Spider-Man, have an excellent array of adversaries to cross paths with, none are as recognisable as the Joker. The visual appearance, the insanity, the sheer joy he takes in his work, the smile that hides the lunacy, all combine to make a magnificent creation. Despite having no affiliations with a bat, the Joker has managed to elevate himself to become the Batman's most recognised and vilest of villains. Perhaps this is because, for the longest time, DC kept each character separate. Superman really fought Clayface, meaning the Joker was only associated with Batman. But even this doesn't account for why the Joker has become so popular. His stories are often formulaic. The logic behind him not getting the electric chair is fuzzy. And he's a psychopath, pure and simple. But maybe that's why we like him. Free of the constraints of society, the Joker does what the Joker does, beholden to no man. There's a reason people write letters to murderers in jail, other than they're a little crazy themselves. It's that they represent a part of ourselves that we keep hidden deep inside. And that dark nature will continue to manifest itself in our pulp fiction. And as long as there is a dark hero like the Batman, there needs to be an even darker adversary. A Joker. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.